Hello, is anybody there? Hello, hello. Hello, hello.
Here's the here's the big enchilada, Pete. When did their informal investigation into Donald Trump and Russia open? Answer that question. Yes. Answer that question, FBI. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to get the answer to that question in court if they are dumb enough to try to charge me on some trumped-up bogus charge. That's what I'm talking about. You know, a couple things I want you to address here. Um, I I watched an interview that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with value taintment. Patrick uh, Bet David did an interview with Alex Jones. And Alex, I I thought in a couple of seconds, did a really good job to expose, for instance, regarding the Podesta and the emails and those in all of this minutia gets caught up in transcripting and everybody's scared of oh, no. um, uh, what do you call oh. it? Perjury, yeah, perjury. Oh, hello. calling them ticky-tack perjury traps because that's all they have. They don't have Russia collusion. But ultimately, when you peel all that back, most people don't even know how significant those emails were as it relates to the potential to expose this pedophilia network that's going on. It's very, very real. Uh, that, that That the information contained in those emails is so significant that the best way to wash that away is to confuse everybody with all this uh, perjury stuff with, you know, no, for no, that's exactly right. right? Create, to create a controversy about how the emails were obtained in order to distract from the content of the emails. Yes, sir. Can anybody say that the material that Assange published was inaccurate or inauthentic? No. In 11 years he's been in business, no one has ever successfully challenged the accuracy or the, or, or the authenticity of anything he has published. Can you say that at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times? Certainly not. No. So, uh, so, so in order to distract the American people from the content and the evidence of the corruption and, and immorality of the contained in those emails, we've created this phony narrative. Now, many in the mainstream media and many in the establishment Want us to believe that it is an established, indisputable fact that Julian Assange is a Russian asset. Mr. Mueller even put it in a uh, in a uh, never go to trial. So it is not a fact until a U.S. court calls it a fact. Assange is not a Russian asset. Mm-hmm. They can't prove it. Mm-hmm. If they want to indict me, they will be forced to try to prove that in court. And now, the most offensive radio talk show host on the planet, Pete Santilli. Okay, right now, it's uh, top of the hour, and uh, we're waiting for Mr. Roger Stone. As uh, you can imagine, he has an extremely, extremely busy schedule. We've been uh, missing each other here the past 24 hours because of his schedule. 
Uh, he's got a lot of legal work, but this gives me an opportunity uh, for a proper uh, introduction. And I'm going to I'm going to introduce we'll connect with him. He'll be joining me here in just a couple of minutes. So he's already sent me a message saying that he was going to be on. So he's just slightly delayed. Uh, but Mr. Roger Stone is a seasoned. If you haven't heard of him, he's a seasoned political operative. That has been in politics for the past 40 plus years. He's a speaker. He's a pundit. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's been featured in the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. If you haven't seen that, uh, that'll give you an idea of who Roger Stone really is. He's a veteran of 10 national presidential campaigns. He served as a senior campaign ad to four Republican presidents, including President Nixon, President Reagan, and most recently, President Donald J. Trump. Mr. Sir, Mr. Stone served as the chairman of Donald Trump's presidential exploratory committee in 2000 and strategic consultant in 2012. And as an outspoken libertarian, uh, he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Uh, also, one of my favorites, which is The Clinton's War on Women. There's nobody uh, that knows about the Clinton's War on Women better than Roger Stone himself. Now, uh, as we await uh, Mr. Roger Stone's uh, appearance here, I'm going to actually switch up and I'm going to cover story. This actually gives me an opportunity to cover some of the news stories because of the flood of information uh, that is out there about Roger Stone. Here on News Target, uh, and this is actually a website run by Mike Adams. Okay, This was published up there. Uh, this was published out by J.D. Hayes, which is one of Mike Adams' uh, uh, great writers. Uh, an attorney for Trump confidant Roger Stone demands the House Intelligence Committee uh, that they release the full transcript of his 2017 testimony. And as we know, Roger Stone right now being targeted by uh, the deep state. But an attorney for Trump confidant Roger Stone has sent a letter to the House Intelligence Committee demanding that the panel release the full testimony of his client, uh, which uh, he gave the panel in September 2017 during a closed door session. In his December 20th letter, which was addressed to committee chairman Devin Nunes, attorney Grant J. Smith said that it was imperative that Stone's four hour testimony be released publicly so his client could combat allegations that he lied under oath uh, to the panel. Now, there's a couple of other uh, elements here, and they're critical elements. And I'm going to go on the screen here, and and Deb, if uh, if you'd like to join me for commentary, because uh, we're we're going to, of course, uh, uh, speak to we'll speak to Mr. Stone. I'm just waiting waiting on word here. Um, I have some concerns about Dr. Jerome Corsi and the inner workings of uh, what's happening with. Dr. Jerome Corsi. I'm actually going to put it on the screen right here. Roger Stone has published an article here saying that Corsi's statement is devoid of any logic. Now, when he comes on, we're going to hear from his words uh, as limited uh, uh, as, as I can be with the uh, amount of questioning. I'm very, very well aware of what's going on with Dr. Corsi. And I'm probably going to repeat myself here. But the stuff that's coming out of Corsi's mouth right now relative to this investigation 
Uh, Roger Stone is actually questioning that Jerry Corsi's claim, uh, Jerry Corsi's claim that I needed after the fact cover for my now iconic Podesta tweet on August 21st is devoid of any logic. Now, picture this. You ready? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to repeat this, and Roger Stone's gonna be joining me here hopefully momentarily. Um, hold on one second. Let me see. That might be him. Might be ready to go. Stand by. Hold on a second. He might be coming on here momentarily. So everybody, stand by. Ah, there he is. Okay, fantastic. All right. So, anyways, uh, as we uh, we carry on, go ahead and get uh, settled in, sir. And then, uh, and then I'll bring you up here. But let me just finish this uh, this quick thought that um, I I said this before, and, and and it probably makes people feel uncomfortable, including you, Deb Jordan. When I say that if Vladimir Putin walked up to me without a shirt, or let's say he rode uh, rode up to me without a shirt on a horse, and said to me, Peter Santilli, I have Hillary Clinton's emails. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and provide them to WikiLeaks. Right. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have a conversation and you can call it collusion all you want. But I'm going to say thank you very much for exposing the fact that these are a bunch of pedocrats, a bunch of criminals. We learned a lot about yeah. what was disclosed in all those emails. Right. right. So if who in Russia's, the media wouldn't want to get their hands on that? Who would not want to? Okay. Mm -hmm. They're calling it Russia collusion. Okay. I call it exposing the crimes of the Clinton crime family. Sure. Right? Oh, I thought that's I'm what it was all about. I'm all Vladimir Putin. I'm not saying I'm going to trust him and everything. As a matter of fact, <laughs> put your shirt back on. Right? right? Get back up on that horse. And thanks very much for that thumb drive. Okay? Mm -hmm. So so this whole Russia collusion thing, if there's context by investigative journalists, uh, for instance, by Roger Stone, all right? And he's got a lead. And somebody says that they're going to be releasing information that Hillary Clinton's been committing crimes. We have uh, some indication through the emails that they're laundering money through the Clinton Foundation. I say yay, Roger Stone, and yay, everyone else. Now this thing is spun off because they want to go after President Trump, of course, to make it seem like, and and in fact, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue to Mr. Mr. Stone because I'm sure he can comment on this. Um, yeah, Roger Stone, welcome back to the Pete Santilli Show. I have already done my introduction of you, by the way. And I'm going to say, uh, President Trump met with Gorbachev in the late 80s. He's, they're calling it Russia collusion. But I'm going to say, if anything, uh, President Trump was unsuccessful since the late 80s in getting his skyscraper in Moscow. He's been talking to the Russians for how many years now, uh, Roger Stone? How long has he been talking to, uh, to the Russians? Well, I think most Americans understand that our real global rival, the real country that uh, is challenging us, stealing our technology, trying to manipulate their currency to our disadvantage, uh, is the Chinese. The Chinese are far more of a problem uh, than the Russians. Uh, and uh, Syria, for those who are unfamiliar with the map, is abuts Russia, just as Mexico but the United States, which is why the Russians have an inherent direct interest in what happens to Syria, which is on the other side of the globe, the United States. So uh, in this whole Russophobia, uh, which is whipped up by those on the left, 
is kind of hypocritical and almost humorous because when we were anti-communist and anti-Russian, they said we were extremists. Uh, It's an excuse. Let's be clear. If Donald Trump said the sky was blue, the American left would say, no, it's green. If Donald Trump said we should reform our criminal justice system so that people who are uh, convicted of a first-time nonviolent crime don't have to spend 15 years in jail and ruin their lives, uh, black Democrat liberals would say, oh, no, I'm against that because Donald Trump is for it. It is a manifestation of Trump derangement syndrome. There's an epidemic of it specifically at the New York Times, a once great newspaper, which is now literally unreadable. I mean, suitable for toilet paper, uh, out of their minds, delirious, insane. Uh, Front page story, news analysis, that means spin. Trump has angered both the left and the right in his decision to withdraw from Syria. No, he has delighted the American people and he's angered that thin group of people on the left and the right who are making millions of dollars out of our involvement in Syria. Yeah, yes, sir. And, you know, before uh, we get into, because there's a lot to talk about, and we have, uh, actually, uh, can you stay with me up until the 27-minute mark? Is that okay? Uh, yes, we're, yeah, we're doing good. Is our sound level okay here? I'm. Uh, we're doing good. Your your voice sounds terrible. I hope you're feeling better. Uh, well, I, I picked up a little cold because, I got to be honest with you, Pete, I probably drank a little too much Russian vodka. You did? <laughs> so, so arrest me. I, I admit it. I, I like the Stolish Naya. Uh, I'm sure Robert Mueller, who is monitoring this broadcast, probably is putting it down in his little book, another Count and Stone's indictment. He loves Russian vodka. It's Stolish Naya, not Veselnikskaya. Right, the exactly. next guy. That's right. <laughs> All right. So I want to I want to ask you this because uh, relative to the New York Times and the media, isn't it disgusting that the PR campaign they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, obviously, to clean their act up because they're a bunch of liars. But the media, and can you imagine uh, on New Year's Eve they're going to be dropping the ball uh, in uh, in Times Square? The media is going to be featured, and we'll be dropping the ball today. I, I'm just almost nauseous thinking about that. The media, which is, of course, the enemy of the American people, is going to be bringing in the new year. What worse way could we ever bring in the new year? I See, I think the real problem is that through the last four decades, they've had monopoly control of the American political narrative. If it didn't happen on NBC, ABC, or CBS, it wasn't on CNN, to a great degree, Fox, simply didn't happen, which is why they have always been able to sell false narratives to the American people. A couple examples. Lee Harvey Oswald killed John Kennedy, and he acted alone. Uh, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the the people in Iraq uh, attacked uh, the United States on 9-11. Those are all false narratives, but the media got used to having the ability to dictate lies to the American people without contradiction. Now, because the rise of a vibrant, robust 
alternative media uh, based in the internet, um, we no longer have to believe the lies of CBS. If you don't, if you don't believe what you hear at CBS, you can go to Infowars or Pete Santilli or Tucker Carlson or Sean Kennedy or Rush Limbaugh or Mike Savage, and you can get an alternative set of facts, yeah. and you can choose what to believe. They hate that. They yeah. despise that. Yeah. Like they run from sunlight which is why they have engaged in this massive campaign of censorship. I sat there, uh, I went right into the bowels of the beast, uh, into the House Judiciary Committee, and I saw this guy, Sundar Pai, the head of Google, perjure himself under oath, lie over and over and over again. And then I saw paid for courtiers like Jerry Nadler whose testimony that day, whose statement that he read was actually written for him by Google lobbyists, mm -hmm. throw the guy softball questions uh, and claim that censorship on the internet of conservatives is a right-wing conspiracy theory. This, despite the leaked memos from, memos from Google, the leaked videos from Google, uh, and, and what we see with our own eyes, uh, so it is, um, it, you know, it, it is a fraudulent process. Uh, you know, I, I spent 40 years in the corroded rectum of the two-party system. <laughs> I, I have seen firsthand the fact that today in Washington, if you have money and the right lobbyists and the right attorneys, you can purchase anything. Anything. Yes, sir. And uh, I, I have some concerns now. In the past, um, I, I want to spend uh, our, our conversation talking about this. And, and then, of course, uh, your recent call upon the House Intelligence Committee to release the, the full transcript. I want you to talk about that as well. But I was talking about uh, uh, Jerome Corsi. I mean, they, they can't, you can even see Mueller with tens of millions of dollars. He can purchase just about any narrative that he can craft and coerce himself. Now, I gave some kudos to uh, Jerome Corsi, and I've seen him take a turn for the worse. Here's my commentary here, and you can speak to this because I don't have an inside track on anything. I heard Alex Jones say well before when Cor Corsi first got caught up in this whole thing. I heard Alex Jones speak to the potential for somebody that doesn't have either, either they have a substance abuse problem uh, or uh, potentially a mental incapacitation. And I'm just thinking to myself, have they exploited this Corsi guy? Because now I'm starting to hear that his narrative is changing slightly as it relates to your message about uh, Podesta's yeah. uh, time in the barrel. So I want you to speak to that because I'm really concerned about yeah. Jerome Corsi's I, mental capacity. Yeah. I want to I explain this because I know Dr. Corsi has many admirers among your audience, but they need to know precisely what is going on. Yes. 72-year-old uh, Jerry Corsi sat for 40 hours uh, of browbeating by Mueller's investigators, turned over all of his emails, or at least what he said were all of his emails. Uh, and the prosecutors suggested two narratives to him that are entirely false, but which he eagerly embraced. One was uh, uh, contradicting the following narrative. About August 20th, 
Uh, I saw Paul Manafort getting the daylights kicked out of him by the mainstream media because of his uh, Eastern European business activities in Ukraine and Russia. I knew that Podesta's brother, Tony Podesta, had represented the exact same Ukrainian political party as Manafort, and I thought, therefore, the coverage was unfair. Corsi pointed out to me, which I did not know, that the Podesta brothers had an extremely lucrative business from the oligarchs around Vladimir Putin. Mm. Gas, aluminum, uranium, mm. bank, a multi-million dollars in fees. I said, Jerry, how do you know that? He says, public information. Peter Schweitzer wrote a piece for the New York Post on July 31st called From Russia with Money. I looked it up. It was devastating. The Panama Papers, uh, written in April of 2016, uh, were uh, also revelatory about those same deals. And then Schweitzer wrote a piece on August 14th reporting that Tony Podesta represented the same political party in Ukraine as Manafort. I asked Corsi if he would write it up in a memo for me. He said he would. Uh, I then tweeted, it will soon be the Podesta's time in the barrel. Essentially telegraphing my intention to take this public information and give it to a number of reporters since it had never gotten wide media coverage. Corsi supplied that memo to me on August 31st. Now, Aaron Zalinski, Rod Rosenstein's right-hand man, who was uh, recommended to the Mueller hit squad by Rosenstein, a violation of Department of Justice regulations, by the way, suggested to Corsi that that memo was a cover story for the fact that Corsi had told me that Podesta's emails had been stolen and that Jerry had supplied to me. Mm. That is a lie. Mm. <laughs> there is no evidence uh, to that effect because it never happened. I had no knowledge that anyone had boosted Mr. Podesta's emails or that their publication was pending at WikiLeaks. Mm. So I, in my tweet, the Podesta's time in the barrel, often truncated to drop the word the New York Times, CNN, Wall Street Journal. They drop the word the to make it appear like I'm referring to one person on Podesta and trying to claim that this is an allusion to the theft of Podesta's emails mm. for knowledge. <laughs> it is not. Yeah. But my question is, since my tweet was not controversial for another six weeks, no social media chatter, no media coverage, no congressional investigation at that time, no Mueller investigation. My question's obvious. A cover up for what? What would I have been covering up? Not the fact that the American people were going to learn that Podesta's emails had been stolen because I myself did not know that. So uh, Jerry eagerly took on this false narrative. They also persuaded him to say that I knew about uh, the uh, NBC Billy Bush grabbed them by the genitals uh, video in advance, and then I urged Jerry in October to contact Assange and tell Assange to move up his disclosures to distract from that story. That's whole cloth. Mm. 
That didn't happen. First of all, by October, it was very clear that Corsi had no contact with Assange. Uh, and secondarily, uh, I didn't have advanced notage, notage, notice of the NBC revelations. You punched me in the stomach when I learned about it. I heard about it on the street in Manhattan. I was low on cell phone battery. I rushed to my apartment to get on a computer and find out what it was all about. So Dr. Corsi eagerly embraced these two lies, was prepared to sit in the dock and say something against me until Mueller, realizing that he had to bolster these lies, said, oh, and by the way, Corsi, you're going to have to testify to James Stone Podesta's emails, but don't worry, we guarantee you no jail time. You know, it was it was then and only then that Dr. Percy decided he wasn't going. You know, a couple of things I want you to address here. Um, I, I watched an interview that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with value attainment. Uh, Patrick uh, Bet David did an interview with Alex Jones, and Alex, I thought I thought in a couple of segments did a really good job to expose, for instance, regarding the Podestas. And the emails in those Clinton emails that went through WikiLeaks. Uh, and all of this minutiae that gets caught up in transcripting and everybody's narratives and all these articles back and forth and these ticky-tack, um, uh, what do you call it, perjury traps. I'm calling them ticky-tack perjury traps because that's all they have. They don't have Russia collusion. But ultimately, when you peel all of that back, most people don't even know how significant those emails were as it relates to the potential to expose this code talk this pedophilia network that's going on, it's very, very real, uh, that, that, they, that the information contained in those emails is so significant that the best way to wash that away is to confuse everybody with all this uh, perjury stuff with, you know, no, from no, that's exactly right. right? Create, to create a controversy about how the emails were obtained in order to distract from the content of the emails. Yes, sir. Can anybody say that the material that Assange published was inaccurate or inauthentic? No. In 11 years he's been in business, no one has ever successfully challenged the accuracy or the, or, or the authenticity of anything he has published. Can you say that at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times? Certainly not. No. So, uh, so, so in order to distract the American people from the content and the evidence of the corruption and, and immorality of the contained in those emails, we've created this phony narrative. Now, many in the mainstream media and many in the establishment want us to believe that it is an established, indisputable fact that Julian Assange is a Russian asset. Mr. Mueller even put it in a uh, in a uh, uh, indictment that he knows will never go to trial. So it is not a fact until a U.S. court calls it a fact. Assange is not a Russian asset. Mm -hmm. They can't prove it. Mm -hmm. If they want to indict me, they will be forced to try to prove that in court. Mm -hmm. Because communications with Assange, even though I had no direct communications with him, is not illegal until they prove that he is a foreign power, and they can't, number one. Number two, Adam Schiff, the Schiff head himself, single most dangerous huckster, con man, fraud, uh, who's ever graced the United States Congress, uh, says that based on recent no news reports, Roger Stone's contacts with WikiLeaks were more extensive than he told the committee. Don't you lying bullshiffer? They are not. 
Prove it. I'm calling you out. Prove it. Show me the evidence. Oh, you're speaking of Jeremy Corsi? He had no contact with WikiLeaks. What are you talking about? I had to kick this guy's ass back to Burbank. Mm -hmm. uh, such a fraud. A fraud. But I will be breaking down his crimes to the American people exceedingly soon. We'll see who the liar is, and we'll see who's telling the truth, Pete. Exactly. Exactly my point here, because now we have, and I'm looking at it, I have seen nothing but, I mean, we, what we need to start doing, as Giuliani says, it's time for us in 2019 to start going on the offensive against this special counsel, Robert Mueller, who has a long train of abuses against the American people. We already have from BCCI... Uh, uh, the uh, the 9-11 uh, investigation, the cover-up, I mean, all of that stuff. Anyways, we could go on and on about that. We need a special counsel to investigate the special counsel. Now, I also believe that this man is exploiting potentially the either mental incapacitation or somebody who is suffering from something he needs to seek uh, help with, that he well, may not even have the ability. Jerome Corsi, he's, he's exploiting Jerome Corsi. And how could he be legally certifying an affidavit to attest to any facts related to you if he's in that condition, sir. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, there's a number of people in InfoWars who I'm certain would testify about the uh, mental uh, incapacity of Corsi uh, uh, and uh, uh, other issues that I think bear directly on his credibility. Uh, but it is... Um, uh, you know, what's clear here is they have no Russian collusion. They could find no WikiLeaks collaboration, and therefore they are attempting to manufacture it. Yeah. Their first witness, Randy Credico, is a psycho. He was the source of, told me first about the significance and the Roger. October timing. Roger, I got I have a hard break here because we're on Truth Frequency Radio. Do me a favor, just stay for a couple minutes on the other side of the break. Is that okay? Because I don't want to end on this note. Yep, we'll be right back, you guys. Uh, Roger Stone joins me uh, back once again to wrap up our discussion. I didn't want uh, to end our conversation on that note. I wanted to bring him back. And also, I have an important question to ask him about some stuff that's on Stone Cold Truth. There's a, a new item. Actually, if you go to Stone Cold Truth, you click that shop button. Uh, in the upper right-hand corner, and you can get your own Roger Stone, signed by Mr. Roger Stone himself, and that's my... There it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, so, Pete, this is... I think most people know uh, that the two-and-a-half-year witch hunt that I've been subjected to has literally driven me and my family to the brink of bankruptcy. I lost uh, the health insurance and life insurance for my family in December because I simply could not pay the premiums. Every dollar I have to scrape up goes to pay lawyers. I'm being investigated by the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm being investigated by the Senate Judiciary Committee. I'm being National Committee. Uh, I've faced several other harassment lawsuits over the 2016 election. And then I, of course, have Robert Mueller digging into every aspect of my personal life. Mm -hmm. This has systematically uh, destroyed what was a very successful business. So I am living on the proceeds of the five books that I have written. Uh, and I came up with the idea of personalizing uh, these stones with my signature. This is therefore a Roger Stone. So uh, historically, Pete, if you check, we did some research. This is an exact facsimile of the very stone 
that little David used to take down Goliath. There you go. Uh, and we are, of course, advocating its use as a paperweight. So I put these up uh, for sale on the Stone Cold Truth. And frankly, they weren't really moving. And then Talking Points Memo uh, and Rolling Stone and The Washingtonian and The Observer all wrote stories mocking me for the sale of this novelty item. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Chumps. <laughs> That's great. $10,000 worth of stuff. Oh, that is great. Just takes us through Christmas Day. I can't keep up with the orders. My wrist actually hurts because I do sign every single one personally. That is so if you go to stonecoldtruth.com, yeah. click on shop, scroll down, and you will see them. Uh, I am happy to ship yours out immediately. Yeah. It's a little piece of history. Yes, sir. Now, uh, folks at The Observer, who are wise-ass, snotty, elitist liberals, <laughs> went to several presidential uh, and political memorabilia companies and said, are these stones really worth anything? And they were said, oh, no. That in a couple of years, they could be worth, you know, $30. Well, folks, these are $10. That's three times your investment. That's three times the ROI. Not so bad. So sell your General Motors stock. Yes. And stone stones. Where are you going to get such a return, right? I think you'll beat the market. That's for sure. Here's my point, and then we'll we'll conclude on on this note. I'll, I'll let you make final commentary because I'm watching this, and as you know, my legal case was, I mean. It was it was huge. And I made special commentary, too, by the way, about David Knight's involvement in covering that story. He had so many guns pointed at him, so many guns that he he probably doesn't even realize it. And now we're, we're saying prayers for his speedy recovery. He is uh, certainly an American hero and a much more important journalist than most people realize. But, sir, he's a, he's a great journalist and a good man. And we pray for his speedy recovery. Ab absolutely. Now, uh, as it relates to your legal case, sir, I see two things right right now, just directly related to you. I see a prosecutor like the same one that I had withholding evidence, scrubbing evidence, destroying evidence. We have a special prosecutor, Mueller, that I want to know about those missing texts. I want to read them and find out if there was anything related to bias between uh, Stroke and Page about Roger Stone while they were in that office. I understand that those text messages have now been removed, sir. I'm saying this out in the open. You don't even need to respond to it because you have a legal case. But I want you through, let's say, StoneDefenseFund.com and your legal case to fight this battle and to go after Mueller and have him brought down for prosecutorial misconduct and have him eating freaking bologna with Stephen Myrie out there with uh, Gloria Navarro in, in Nevada. What do you think about that? Well, here's what we do know. Uh, in May of 2016, uh, a, a man came to see me using the name Henry Greenberg. He was an ethnic Russian. Uh, I had forgotten this because it was a 15-minute meeting in which he offered to sell me dirt on Hillary Clinton for $2 million. And I laughed in his face. Mm -hmm. And then he said, well, it's not your money I want. It's Donald Trump's money. There he gave away the game. <laughs> we now know that Mr. Greenberg was in the country on an informant's visa, a courtesy of the FBI office of uh, uh, in Miami. We also know that Peter Stroke visited that office shortly before Mr. Greenberg came to see me. He came to see me at roughly the same time that Joseph Mifsud was a uh, approaching uh, 
George Papadopoulos, and about the time that Stephen Halper was approaching uh, uh, Carter Page. So a man working for James Comey at the direction of Peter Stroke was approaching a Trump intimate in May prior to the time they say their investigation into uh, Russian association with Donald Trump had been open. Adam Schiff has no interest in who Mr. Greenberg is. He's only interested in why I didn't recall this meeting. Well, the meeting was innocuous in the fact that nothing improper happened at the meeting. Nothing improper or legal happened at the as a result of the meeting. The greater question isn't why I didn't remember this. The greater question is why was the FBI sending uh, an informant to try to entrap me and to compromise Donald Trump in May of 2016? That's the question they don't want to confront. Here's the here's the big enchilada, Pete. When did their informal investigation into Donald Trump and Russia open? Answer that question. Yes. Answer that question, That's FBI. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to get the answer to that question in court if they are dumb enough to try to charge me on some trumped-up bogus charge. That's what I'm talking about. And Roger Stone, that's what I'm saying right now. I'm looking at this just as an, as an outsider, and I said to myself, it's not just Roger Stone back on his heels. Of course, they're going to come after him. He's a target of the deep state. Now I'm looking at this like Roger Stone's case is so critical right now, potentially going after Robert Mueller and exposing prosecutorial misconduct, the withholding of evidence that might be related to you, exculpatory. And now uh, your defense is critical on behalf of the American public to expose this corruption, sir. It's using the power of discovery to force open what the FBI was doing. Yes. Do they really want to go down that road? Uh, Mr. Mueller should be prosecuted for the for the construct for the destruction of evidence. If I had erased all of my emails, you can bet they would be prosecuting me. Hmm. I have erased nothing. I have deleted nothing. I have one million emails, but if those jerks at the U.S. Senate Judiciary Intelligence Committee says, I think I'm going to hand them over so they can violate my Fourth Amendment rights and go fishing, they've got another thing coming. By the way, I'll give them all my documents. When every member of, on both parties, on those committees, waives their congressional immunity from lawsuit, in which case I will sue John, uh, Mark Warner so fast her head would spin. He has said flatly, Roger Stone was a Russian spy. That is a defamatory statement, UPOS. I know a lot about you, too. I had to get you in a courtroom, but you hide behind your Senate immunity. So you can defame U.S. citizens without any basis of fact. It is the lowest form of character assassination, Pete. You know, it, in 2019, uh, do you think that your case, and uh, I'm going to use the the, the the appropriate term, is your case going to be the tip of the spear? Because at first I saw, you know, Coros, uh, Corsi and, and his case and the way he's coming at it. If, if Corsi is Mueller's secret weapon, I say you're going to start crushing the deep state. Then with you, if your case is allowed to, uh, to proceed fairly, because the government has almost unlimited resources, uh, to yes. put you back on your heel and outspend you. We already know this. But we the people must push through this thing and expose Mueller for what he is, as a deep, stri- deep state prosecutor that has committed misconduct. In 2019, do you think you can take this thing and just bust it wide open, be the tip it's, of the spear on it? This is really simple. 
President Donald Trump needs to direct Acting Attorney General Whitaker to appoint a special counsel in the matter of Uranium One, and they should deliver a subpoena to Mr. Mueller, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Susan Rice, and everybody else. You could have them indicted within 48 hours, uh, and then the tables would be turned. The real Russian collusion is by them. The real criminals are them. It is time to investigate the investigators. Absolutely. And uh, Roger, I thank you very much for staying with me for, for the extra time. And as this case proceeds, we're now transitioning from 2018, including President Trump being, uh, of course, back on his heels. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, we go on, and I say the offensive, with truth in our hands and righteousness, of course, going forward to expose these deep state criminals uh, from the Clinton cabal to uh, the Mueller's, uh, you know, uh, being their uh, their protector, of course. But, sir, we will continue to follow your case. Go ahead. Final people, commentary. People we who want to help can go to stonedefensefund.com. Now, do not put in rogerstonedefensefund.com because mm. that will take you to a Planned Parenthood site. This is a little trick by David Brock and the twits at Media Matters. It's stonedefensefund.com. We've had a very sparse Christmas here in the Stone household. Uh, you can see stories online that Stone is worth 20 million, he's wealthy. Those are planted, that's disinformation. I need the help of every American patriot and I need it today. Thank you, Pete, God bless you. Yeah, thank you, God bless you too. Uh, Happy New Year to you and uh, we will continue to cover this story. I know we're gonna have great success in 2019. Thank you so much, sir, I appreciate it. Many thanks. Hey everyone, Pete Santilli here. I want to let you know that this broadcast is brought to you in part by our friends at Rugged Reserves. Our Patriot flashlight is a must-have for every e-militia member. Just think about it. When you pack your bug-out bag, you want everything from glass-breaking hammer to a cell phone charger to a flashlight to a wire cutter and compass. Well, you can get all of that and more with the Patriot flashlight. Light up the darkness with 500 lumens that can be seen miles away. And there's an emergency strobe with four unique lighting modes. Now the Patriot flashlight even comes with an emergency siren. And you know what the best part is? It's solar powered. So this bad boy will always have power when you need it most. It really does make the perfect Christmas gift. So get one for your bug out bag, your car, your wife's car, for your home. Just visit PatriotFlashlight.com. I'll leave the link below this video. Use promo code P20 to save 20% off your purchase. That's PatriotFlashlight.com. Enter promo code P20. The link is below this video. Christmas is always a time for shiny things, isn't it? Tinsel, glitter, candles, glossy wrapping paper, and glittering snow are all part of Christmas time. It's these things that make it all so special. And because you don't see them every day, you appreciate them that much more. And then they're gone. Something shiny that won't be gone once Christmas is over is Noble Gold's Solid Silver Trump 2020 Freedom Point. You've probably seen the website, trumpcoin2020.com. Since they mended these back in July, Noble Gold has sold thousands of these beautiful coins as collector's items for investments and even to add to IRAs and 401k rollovers. Yes, you heard that right. Because these are 0.999% fine silver, the IRS even allows them to be included in your retirement fund. Now, how about that? 
Of course, there's a Christmas special offer on right now. To find out what it is and how you can get a hold of a very special gift for your favorite Trump supporter, go to TrumpCoin2020.com and enter offer code BEATSANTILLY to receive free shipping if you buy three coins or more. Don't wait for this offer to end. Go to TrumpCoin2020.com and don't forget the offer code BEATSANTILLY and make this your Christmas to shine. Greetings and salutations, everyone. I'm Tyrell Ventura. Coming up on Buzzsaw, we're digging into the JFK assassinations and Lyndon Baines Johnson's involvement in it. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us. Joining me today is Roger Stone, a man who's got over 40 years experience in inside the Beltway politics in Washington. He's worked for Nixon. He's helped manage the campaign of Gary Johnson. And today he's got a new book out called The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. We're going to find out the evidence that he's uh, put forth in this book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us today, Roger. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been, you know, this is a fascinating book and a fascinating uh, subject matter. What, you know, you've spent 40 plus years uh, as a political insider. What uh, what inspired you to write, to kind of investigate LBJ's involvement? Uh, you know, the uh, the claims of the Warren Commission never seemed credible to me from the beginning. Uh, 1964, I read a book uh, called The Texan Looks at Linden. I was a preteen volunteer in the Goldwater campaign. And the book, it outlined a a pattern of criminal conduct and murder by Lyndon Johnson uh, in his uh, pre-presidential years. I believe, and I say in my book, he's responsible for at least eight murders. Murders to cover up corruption, epic corruption. Murders to cover up vote theft and electoral fraud. So murder is in his DNA, murder's in his repertoire. Therefore, it's not surprising that in November of 1963, when he is facing political ruin. He is actually facing the end of the trail because he knows that uh, that uh, Robert Kennedy wants him off the 1964 ticket. He knows that the U.S. Senate is investigating him in the Bobby Baker scandal. Baker was his right-hand man, his bag man in the Senate, secretary of the U.S. Senate, uh, taking millions in bribes on behalf of Lyndon Johnson. He also knows that Robert Kennedy uh, has given Time Life a dossier regarding Lyndon Johnson and his business dealings with a man named Billy Sal Estes, who is a flamboyant Texas wheeler dealer who's been kicking back millions to Johnson. So time is running out for Lyndon Johnson. He's a desperate man. He isn't just facing political ruin. He's facing prosecution and jail. And he knows that that Life magazine has their, their expose on him scheduled for December 1st. So the clock is running out. And so obviously, yes, if he then becomes president, he can put a kind of a squash on all And that's exactly what happens. As soon as he uh, is elevated to the presidency, the Baker hearings in the United States Senate are terminated. The Justice Department investigation into Lyndon Johnson is terminated. Billy Salestis doesn't rat Johnson out. He goes to jail, as does Baker. But no one points a finger at LBJ because he's the president of the United States. States. So do you feel that he hatched the plot himself or do you feel that he... You know, when he got wind of the idea of killing Kennedy, he became a very avid. I think uh, he's the, I think he's the linchpin of the plot. In other words, it's not very hard if you're a Lyndon Johnson to look at all the others who have a, an interest in the removal of JFK. First of all, I think it's important to note that if you look at all the others who I think are part of this plot, the CIA, organized crime, big Texas oil, 
Johnson has a unique relationship with each one of them. Johnson is on the committee that oversees the CIA. Johnson has approved their black box budgets in the 1950s and 60s. Johnson has helped fund the CIA. When he leaves the Senate, his, uh, his ally, Senator Harry Byrd from Virginia, becomes the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee overseeing the CIA and their budgets. Johnson uh, has a unique relationship with organized crime. We now know that Johnson is being paid $55,000 a month in a bribe, which is huge monies in 1963, to protect the illegal gambling operations in Texas of mobster Carlos Marcello, who operates the Texas and Louisiana mobs out of New Orleans. And then, of course, there's big oil. Lyndon Johnson is the water carrier for the oil depletion allowance, which JFK wants to do away with. We're talking about millions in new in new taxes and higher taxes for his wealthy right-wing oil buddies in Dallas. So he has a unique relationship with everyone else involved in the plot, and therefore it's not hard for him to find co-conspirators. What I... You know, there's also obviously the, the case in, as well, you know, in, in terms of like the military industrial complex and things like that. And, you know, Kennedy was looking to kind of not go into Vietnam. I think there's Johnson a lot of is the ways. appropriator for the military industrial compacts. No defense contract gets let in the United States in the 1950s and 60s without a bribe to Lyndon Johnson. His aide, Don Reynolds, testifies to the U.S. Senate. There were suitcases of money coming in and out of his office. Uh, we have the best example of this just prior to the investigation. Johnson wires a $5.6 billion contract for General Dynamics in Fort Worth. Uh, the Secretary of the of the Air Force is forced to resign over, over the fact that Johnson delivered this contract. So um, he is the appropriator for the military industrial complex. There is nobody closer to the Pentagon boys or the CIA. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Kennedy uh, got any wind of this ahead of time? You know, I mean, if, if, if he has kind of all of these people, you know, conspiring and talking and things like that, hypothetical, you know, his vice president, you know, we know we know for a fact that uh, JFK tells his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, on the on the uh, eve of leaving for Dallas, that Johnson will be dumped from the ticket. He knows that that because of the Baker scandal and the Solesta scandal, that Johnson has become a giant liability. Um, there, there can be no question that JFK knows that the CIA is unhappy with him over the uh, over the Bay of Pigs. But from his point of view, he's the chief executive. They should be more upset that he's upset with them. Indeed, he's prepared legislation to defang the CIA. He has signed documents uh, that start the, the uh, withdrawal of our men from Vietnam with an eye towards having them all withdrawn by 1958. He has vetoed Operations Northwoods, which is a plan by the CIA to go out and kill Americans, try to make it look like the Cubans did it as a provocation to invade. And then there's the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the American people are told that John F. Kennedy faced down the Russians and made them blink. But 30 years later, we find out that Jack and Bobby traded away our strategically placed missiles in Italy and Turkey, changing the balance of power in the Western uh, theater. But no one told us that at the time. So the Russians, they made a good deal. They came out on top in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so uh, I don't think he understands the enormity uh, and we now know, of course, it's Lyndon Johnson who insists that he visit uh, Texas. It is Lyndon Johnson and his uh, and his associate, Governor John Connolly, who insist on the drive through Dealey Plaza. In fact, Connolly tells the chief advance man for President Kennedy, if he doesn't want to do it our way, tell him the invitation is rescinded and we don't want him. Wow. Now, I've worked for four American presidents and I've elected a number of governors. Governors don't talk to presidents that way. It doesn't happen that way.
Yeah, that's incredible. Look, let's talk about a little bit. I think it was also interesting to get into Johnson's actions after the assassination. I mean, we've all heard the stories of you know him, you know, having the limousine washed and refurbished. And I mean, when you look at his actions afterwards, they seem like the actions of a guilty man, or at least trying to cover up a crime. Yeah, I think you have to look at Johnson's activities before, during, and after the assassination. Before the assassination, he blackmails his way onto this ticket. In 1960, John Kennedy already decided on Stuart Symington to be his running mate. He's asked Symington and Symington's accepted. Symington's in his hotel writing his acceptance speech. Lyndon Johnson shows up late at John Kennedy's hotel room. He has with him a dossier on Kennedy's sex life, courtesy of J. Edgar Hoover and his famous secret files. Johnson and Hoover were very close. They were next door neighbors. Johnson has delivered all of Hoover's budgets in the United States Senate. Hoover likes power. He likes money. The CIA has expanded exponentially during the times that Johnson is controlling the purse strings. And Hoover is looking at the mandatory retirement. He knows the Kennedys are going to put him out to pasture. So Johnson basically says to Kennedy, you need me on the ticket. And if you won't take me on the ticket, I'll give this dossier and I'll just go over and give it to Dick Nixon. And you can worry about it in the fall. Mm. So Kennedy folds. They ask Johnson the next day, why would you take, why would you step down from one of the most powerful positions in the federal government, Senate Majority Leader, for a powerless position? And he says, I've looked at the odds. There's a one in four chance of Kennedy dying and my becoming president. So he's he's very candid about why he takes the vice presidency. Wow. Wow. Uh, he he uh, is uh, insistent on going to Dallas, as we discussed. And then on the actual day. As his car, three car lanes behind the president's limousine, pulls into Dealey Plaza, but before the first shot is fired, he hits the deck. He's on the floor. He's huddled around a walkie-talkie. Really? Now, how do we know that? There's an actual photograph where you can see uh, 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 Lady Bird waving to the crowd. You can see Senator Ralph Yarbrough waving to the crowd, but there's no Johnson. That's because he's on the floor of the car. He later gets a Secret Service agent, Rufus Youngblood, to say, falsely when i heard the first shot i shoved johnson to the floor that is completely false we know that because the timing of the photograph is known so there's photographic evidence that johnson ducks before anything even happens happens. and what is he listening for on the walkie-talkie right right. the word that that the big event has happened the big event has happened which is the big event is interesting because when i was working on conspiracy theory just even you know with my father uh we had interviewed um e howard hunt's son and he had the audio confession of E. Howard Hunt referring to the big event. Which is interesting because that's also what Ed Clark, who was Johnson's personal attorney and the man I believe was the actual campaign manager, as it were, project manager of the assassination, he referred to it as the big event. It's interesting. That's I think cool. all the all of the plotters referred to it as the big event. Mm. Mm, that's very interesting. So what? let's get into what Johnson did. Um, you know, it's interesting. You had talked, I believe, about, you know, who he got to remove the bubble top as well. Yeah, I, I always found this curious. Uh, uh, Bill Moyers, yeah. now with PBS, mm-hmm. a man who refuses to be interviewed on this subject by anyone. He goes to the Secret Service and he says, the president wants this goddamn bubble top off now. But the problem, of course, is that Two Kennedy aides, Ken O'Donnell and Jerry Bruno, both testified for the Warren Commission that the president never gave any such order. And Moyers, an ordained Episcopal minister, a theological student, that didn't sound like his language. He sounds like he's paraphrasing his boss, Lyndon Johnson. Get that goddamn bubble top off. Now, the bubble top was not bulletproof, but it was opaque. 
it wasn't it what it what you couldn't see through it therefore there was no way to get a clear headshot which is why it was crucial for the bubble top to be removed so bill moyers has blood on his hands and he should answer these questions do you think do you think that he was knew about it ahead of time or do you think he was a pawn in the game i suspect he was just a pawn of lyndon johnson look he he himself is quoted as saying that johnson was a very very sick man it was the, the, the personality of Lyndon Johnson was concealed from the American people. He was a ruthless, corrupt, vindictive, unbalanced, vicious, abusive, crude, vulgar. Uh, uh, this is a man who, who, who fathered three illegitimate children while president of the United States, a man who is having sexual relationships with at least five women in the White House staff. Uh, this is someone who is usually drunk. Uh, so um, this burnished image that the LBJ library cranks out, Lyndon Johnson was an amoral psychopath. Mm. And, and those who worked for him knew it. George Reedy, his own press secretary, said he was an animal. Mm. Descri- he, he, he likened him to St- Stalin and Hitler. Wow. Uh, uh, Moyer said he was a very sick man. Bobby Kennedy said he was an animal. Richard Nixon said he was a wild animal. Mm. This, is, this is someone who I think... Um, the American people have lost sight of how evil and how corrupt uh, and how um, uh, completely devious uh, he was. Well, I, you've also talked a little bit about uh, you know Jackie Kennedy's response to all of this, and could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, ja- I don't believe Jackie Kennedy. Uh, she writes in a letter, "I never, I never liked Lyndon Johnson, and I never trusted him," which is in my books. First time the letter I think has ever been reported. She also um, asks French intelligence, since she can't get the time of day from American intelligence, uh, and because she's, uh, you know, she's the toast of Paris, uh, she's a bourgeois, she's fluent, she asks friends in French intelligence who killed my husband. So they conduct their own investigation, and they determine it is Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Uh, we know from a declassified document, uh, declassified in 1992, a memo from J. Edgar Hoover to the president, that the KGB has conducted their own investigation, exhaustive investigation. They have also concluded that it's Lyndon Johnson. Johnson. Uh, Jack Ruby, uh, who's never allowed to talk to the press prior to his conviction, but who is uh, going down a hallway. You can see this on YouTube. He's wearing in handcuffs. He's being pulled down a hallway. Reporter shouts out, Jack, how could this happen? Ruby says this never would have happened if Adlai Stevenson had been vice president. They say, Jack, what are you saying? Ruby says, look at the man at the top. The man who's in there now, the man at the very top, he's talking about Lyndon Johnson. I mean, if you're going to pull off an assassination and, and let's call it for what it probably is, a coup d'etat. It is a coup d'etat. You, you need to have, obviously, Lyndon there. And especially when, like, as you're saying, Lyndon was such an advocate for it and was fighting for it, given all the pressures that he had. You know, well, and, 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 he, and he was in a hurry because time was running out. Yes. He, was, he was facing federal prison. I think it was, uh, I think Oliver Stone's movie put it best. They said Lyndon Johnson was waiting in the wings yeah. for the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Let's let's get into, you know, what I always found interesting as well is another kind of, you know, smoking gun. You always look at actions, you know, and, and you know, Lyndon appointed the Warren Commission. Right. You know, and. You know, they came up with Oz, you know, they came up with Oswald and all of this, and they kind of built this case towards Oswald, everything pointed to Oswald. How do you think, you know, do you believe that they knew that a conspiracy took place or, you know, were actually, they? Actually, do, I think not. I really? think Johnson, uh, we know from Earl Warren's memoirs that Johnson gets Warren to, to chair the commission by saying, look, 
the Russians did this, the Russians and the Cubans. We have to cover it up for the American people because it will mean World War III. It would mean 30 million dead in a nuclear holocaust. Do this for your country. You must do this for peace and your country. I think all those men have been conned into believing that they are doing it to, to cover up a greater evil. We, we have the telephone tapes of Senator Richard Russell. On the day that they signed the final report, he says to Johnson, I don't believe a word of it. And Johnson says, either do I. Wow. Wow. I mean, we, well, and then, but you also had like people like, you know, uh, Alan Dulles on the commission too, who was fired by Kennedy. So, I mean, he clearly yeah, this had is, this is This is hysterical. You know. Alan Dulles is very bitter about being fired. Kennedy blames him for the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, uh, uh, appointing Dulles is 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 a is an fu to the uh, to the Kennedy family, yeah. and then Johnson says later that he appointed Dulles to the commission at the request of Robert Kennedy. The problem is that when Johnson says this, Robert Kennedy is already dead. That's mm. because it is a lie, and it's interesting. The only guy in the Warren Commission who doesn't have a full time job and therefore spends most of his time steering the cover-up is Alan Dulles. Everybody else on the commission has a full-time job. Full job. Even the senior lawyers all have a full-time job with their fancy law firms, mm -hmm. which is why you have junior lawyers like Arlen Specter and David Bellin dreaming up the completely cockamamie a single bullet theory. Well, it's interesting when I was reading your bio, you'd actually worked with Arlen. I did. I knew him very, very well. And we fought like we fought like a cat and a dog over this, usually over, over cocktails. Really? He was a very smart very aggressive, very abrasive establishment uh, uh, guy who was very ambitious. Mm -hmm. And he is doing the establishment's bidding. He's doing what Earl Warren and Alan Dulles tell him to. And it's not hard because, as you know, J. Edgar Hoover wraps up his investigation in, in three days. And he hands it to the Warren Commission says, here, boys, rubber stamp there this. There you go. Yeah. And in fact, they do. Uh, the problem is, just before they're about to rubber stamp his conclusion, three bullets all shot from the back, uh, uh, Oswald is a communist, which is a total fabrication, yeah. they have one minor problem, and that is Jim Tague pops up, and he's uh, a car salesman, he's in Dealey Plaza that day, uh, and a bullet hits the curb next to him, and a fragment of bullet or a fragment of cement uh, pops up and scratches his, his face. Well, now the government has a problem. There's another bullet. Yeah. Yeah. So they were saying, well, the first bullet hit Kennedy, then the second bullet hit Connolly, then the third bullet hit, hit and Kennedy. It was a headshot. Now they can't say that anymore because they've got a fourth bullet, and there's proof of the fourth bullet. So now Spectre is forced to invent the so-called single bullet theory, which would be the first time in the history of the world that a bullet has actually changed directions yeah. three times. Three times. And remained pristine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very little damage on this bullet that went through, you know, a wrist, ribs, throat, you know, all of this. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane. Anybody you know. Well, you know, it's interesting. Well, and then they also have this Abruder film, too, that, you know, kind of documented the whole thing. Yeah, actually, uh, Spectre was forced to admit that there are frames missing from the Zap Rudder film. Mm -hmm. Um, there, I, I learned uh, in the course of writing this book uh, after after Earl Inspector was already deceased, of his badgering witnesses, uh, threatening to send one witness, Gene Hill, who insists she heard four shots. He, he says, "Do you realize I can have you put in a mental institution?" So um, he's a bully, mm -hmm. and he's doing the establishment's bidding. Right. Uh, because he, they're uh, under the fear of the, the Russians. It's did the Russians. We, we have to we have to cover it up. So even Earl Inspector thinks he is working for notable purposes. Right. He doesn't understand he's covering up a criminal conspiracy that involves the president, 
Lyndon Johnson, the agency, the mob, Texas oil mill. He doesn't realize that that's what he's covering up. He thinks he's covering up the Soviets. Well, it gets into that, that element that we always get asked. You know, how can you keep a conspiracy running through all of these people? Well, of the thousand people tangentially uh, involved with this race, over a hundred of them die mysteriously. Mm -hmm. Or, pardon me, a majority of the hundred die mysteriously. Yeah. That's how, mm -hmm. the, by by silencing witnesses who, who come forward and say things that don't fit the Warren Commission's narrative, the Arlen Specter narrative. So, woe be unto you if you say, you know, you, you saw a man shooting on the grassy knoll. 51 witnesses say they saw... Uh, a, a puff of smoke, a flash of light, commotion on the grassy knoll. None of their testimony makes the Warren Commission report. Well, where did, let's talk a little bit about, you know, where does Oswald fit into all of this? Well, first of all, I, I think you got to start with who is the shooter or who yeah. is least. Okay, yes, yes, yes. I, I think that the shooter from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository is a man named Malcolm Mac Wallace. Okay. He is the personal hitman of Lyndon Johnson. Mm. Uh, he has worked for Lyndon Johnson since the 50s. I believe that he is responsible for the death of John Kinzer, who was blackmailing Johnson, uh, who was involved with Johnson's sister intimately. Johnson's sister was a very uh, flamboyant, bohemian, bisexual party girl mm. and sometime prostitute. Not a good person to have when running for higher office. Right, and she family. was a constant embarrassment to Johnson. Uh, uh, Wallace uh, killed Kinzer. Uh, he went to trial. First of all, when he was apprehended, According to the affidavit of the arresting officer, he says, you can't arrest me. I work for Senator Johnson and I have to get back to Washington. He's indicted for first degree murder. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes to trial. He is defended by John Kofer, Lyndon Johnson's personal attorney. He is the only every other person convicted of first degree murder that year, 1951 in Texas, gets the electric chair. But not Malcolm Wallace. He gets convicted and he gets a five year suspended sentence wow. where he immediately goes to work. I mean, within days at Temco which is a defense contractor owned by a man named H.D. Byrd, one of Lyndon Johnson's closest friends, biggest financial backers, and the owner of the Texas School Book Depository oh. building. Wow. So Johnson wow. has motive, he has means, and he creates the opportunity. Why do we know it's Wallace? Here's why. Wallace leaves a fingerprint in the sniper's nest. There's only five prints that don't belong to uh, the Dallas Police Department or some employee of the building. Four of them belong to Oswald, I suspect planted there, but there's one 34 point match print for Malcolm Wallace, wow. which is admissible in a court of law. We also know now that at least six witnesses who were ignored by the Warren Commission say that prior to the assassination, they saw into the sixth floor and they saw more than two people and they saw a man who was heavy set, balding with horn rim glasses. You have just described Malcolm Wallace. Malcolm Wallace, wow. Wow, that's incredible. That's really incredible. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other shooters. I believe there are. I think there's a team of shooters on the Grassy Knoll. I think there's conceivably a team of shooters in the Dow Techs building yes. next to the School Book Depository building. There may even be a shooter in the sewer grate. It is clear that the president is shot from the front and the back. Yeah. The government goes through ridiculous gyrations with the autopsy photos. The Warren Commission makes their decisions without having ever seen x-rays or autopsy photos. They're given hand-drawn artists' renderings of the president's wound. If that doesn't scream cover-up, I don't know what does. Well, and they also, you know, they also, let's say, illegally took the body from Parkland and moved it to Bethesda, where then you have surgeons operating under, you know, the, military surgeons operating under military orders. Yeah, the, yeah. The, we know that the doctors in Parkland describe a wound in the back of Kennedy's head 
We know that the the, the uh, x-rays and autopsy photos that ultimately surface show the back of his head intact. Those are obvious forgeries. Uh, no, the government goes to great gyrations to try to hide the fact that the that the president has been hit at a minimum from the front and the back and perhaps even from the side. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you'd also talked about Ger- Gerald Ford's involvement with that autopsy and, and kind of manipulating things in there. Yeah, I think Ford working on the behest of Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, um, purposely alters the autopsy photographs. We know this from a, from a document that was declassified in 1992. We also know that in the memoirs of Deke DeLoach, who was the number three man in the um, in the, the FBI, in the memoirs of William Sullivan, who was the number two man, that, uh, that Ford was, first of all, an informant for Hoover on the Warren Commission. So oh, he's keeping, he's letting Hoover know what happens at every meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Deloach says, well, we have a problem. What's the problem? Well, uh, we're having a hard time selling, sending, selling the three bullet theory and the single, the magic bullet theory to a number of the commission members um, because we're being asked how, how a bullet in his upper back could conceivably exit from the front of his throat. So Gerald Ford, in his own handwriting with a pencil, alters the autopsy record to move a wound from the upper left back, even with the third uh, thoracic vertebrae, according to the president's doctor, to his lower neck to try to accommodate the fiction that the wound on the front of the of the president's uh, throat is an exit wound, when I think we recognize today well, now, it's an entrance wound. But now wound. you'll get like Gerald Posner and Vincent Bugliosi saying, oh no, his coat was just bunched up, and that's why I did. That's actually, that's actually been completely disproved by the photos. There's no evidence that his, that his, uh, that his coat has been bunched up, but let's put that aside. Admiral George Bunkley signed the death certificate, and he says the wound is three inches from the third thoracic vertebrae. Are we saying that this this Navy Admiral physician was lying? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. Uh, what also is fascinating too is I mean we're listing off all these kind of names in history and modern you know modern political history, and one of them that pops up was George H. W. Bush, and you make a very you know you know he like you said is for 20 years couldn't remember where almost he was almost 30 years. Yeah, and then he was also associated with George de Mornschild, who was then also associated with Oswald. Could you kind of walk us through his? Yeah, it's very, I can't I make no accusation against. Bush, because I really can't quite figure out what he's doing there, and I have no proof. I know a lot of JFK researchers want to say, well, he was, you know, he played a central role. We don't know that. What we do know is that for 30 years, he said he didn't know where he was that day, which is absurd because every adult knows knows they were that day. Then uh, a document is declassified in the 90s, ironically, on the basis of legislation that Bush himself signs, (laughs) although I think reluctantly. They shows that only minutes after the president is shot, he calls the FBI bureau in Houston, uh, essentially to establish an alibi. Well, it's uh, 145 here. I'm here in uh, Tyler, Texas, and I want to tell you that I have heard about a guy named James Parrott in Houston, who other people have tell me may have made threats against the president. I don't have no firsthand knowledge. It may be nothing, but I just thought I would report it. In fact, when the FBI rushes to find Mr. Parrott, he's in his garage painting George Bush for U.S. Senate posters. <laughs> so he's he's just a, a, a fall guy, and he's not charged because he hasn't done anything wrong. So for some reason, Bush goes out of his way to create an alibi. He also lies in that call. He says that he is going to return to Dallas that night and can be found there when, in fact, he flies on to Houston that night. That's curious. And he never mentions that he was in Dallas the night before staying at the Sheraton Hotel. Mm. In that same trove of documents, we get another document from J. Edgar Hoover, 
uh, written the day after President Kennedy's assassination, in which he directs underlings at the FBI to brief George Bush of the CIA. Well, George Bush says in his Senate confirmation hearings in the 70s that he never worked for the CIA, which I think is perjury. So I don't know what George Bush is doing in Dallas, but I know that he goes out of his way to dissemble, and I find that curious. Very curious. Anyone would have to find it curious that that four men who would be president are in Dallas that day. Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Bush. And then another man who would be president, Gerald Ford, helps cover up the crime. Helps cover up the crime. Five presidents. That's Very incredible. interesting. Very is, interesting. The odds against it are extraordinary. Well, you know, one of the guys who's, who's put out a recent book on it is Bill O'Reilly. Yes. You know, and, and you know, what do you think of his book? He's just wrong. I mean, yeah. first of all, I don't think Bill O'Reilly wrote his book. <laughs> I'm not sure Bill O'Reilly has read his book. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, uh, and by the way, the book is really good. If you want to know about Kennedy's sex life, it's very racy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's it, a wonderful it's, expose. It's yeah. extraordinary how many men and Jack, how many women Jack Kennedy is getting with in, in O'Reilly's book. So it's very period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's and he does accurately tell you how desperate Johnson was. Mm-hmm. He tells you what I have, that Johnson's about to be prosecuted, that Don, Johnson is desperate, but he won't pull the trigger. He won't connect all the dots. Uh, and then to finally, in the, in the final analysis, conclude that uh, Oswald did it, it's kind of a letdown. It's a disappointment because through two-thirds of the way through his book, he's making the case to blow apart the Warren Commission, and then he folds in like everybody else. And I, and I bring up O'Reilly just to kind of talk about the modern media today and why they still, even today, refuse to acknowledge that there was anything you know, suspicious about Kennedy's death beyond the lone angry dot Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, you can understand it at the time. In, in 1963, there's only three television networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC. So if they don't say it, it didn't happen. They have a monopoly on communications, electronic communications. You have only two or three major national newspapers, national newspapers, the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune. So, and we have documents from the CIA that talk about their efforts to manipulate the media to satisfy the public curiosity about who killed Kennedy. Uh, and it was very easy to perpetrate a cover-up in 1963. Thank God for the internet mm-hmm. and for shows like this one, it's no longer possible to control all the information and therefore it shows us why a majority of the American people continue to tell the Gallup poll that they don't believe the government's version yeah. of the Kennedy assassination. They believe there was a conspiracy. They don't believe Oswald acted alone if Oswald acted at all. Personally, I believe Oswald is on the second floor eating his lunch, just like he says he is. Uh, I don't think he's even on the sixth floor. I also, uh, the idea of uh, Mr. Posner and Mr. Bugliosi that he ran down the stairs, really? Why is he not out of breath? Why is he not uh, upset? Why does he not, it's not dawned on him yet that there's a problem. He's casually drinking a Coke when uh, when he's encountered by a Dallas police officer. Uh, We also know that the Warren Commission discounted uh, testimony about men leaving, fleeing the building immediately afterwards. Men who met the description of those who saw men in the sixth floor windows. A man with a brown coat and horn-rimmed glasses. That's Malcolm Wallace. Yes, yes. You know, it's, it's, this is just fascinating. And I, I strongly, again, I strongly urge everyone to kind of pick up this book and read it because it's a, you, you've done a fascinating job with this. I have to ask, you know, given your history, you know, uh, in politics and, and, you know, the friends you've made, the enemies you've made and, and all of that, what has been 
their reaction to you writing this book? Uh, it's been mixed. I mean, I'm a free spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've, uh, I'm, I guess I started as a Goldwater Republican. Mm -hmm. I really believe in small government. Mm -hmm. I really believe in privacy. I really believe in the rights of the individual. Uh, and I, yes, I've been right in the in the middle of right-wing American politics for 30, 40 years. I've seen some amazing things. And therefore, I think that I am a, I'm a realist. In other words, my book is not a love letter for anybody. I'm very critical of, uh, of Lyndon Johnson and the Kennedys. I'm also very critical of Richard Nixon, who I worked for. You worked for, yeah. uh, it, You know, this is kind of a warts and all book uh, <laughs> by somebody who was there. And I'm a realist. I have soured on the, the two-party duopoly, sadly. The, the Republican Party that was traditionally the small government party has morphed into a big government party. Yes. Both parties are for the Patriot Act. Both parties are for government spying. Neither party will balance the federal budget. Both parties are deeply committed to more spending and more taxes uh, and more interference in the private lives of Americans. Both parties seem committed to running off to foreign wars where the best interests of the United States are just not clear. Uh, it, it, that doesn't mean there aren't some good Republicans. For me, there are. There are people who are fighting within the party. For, but uh, it's why I became a member of the Libertarian Party and, and why uh, I uh, voted for Governor Gary Johnson, who was on the ballot in 48 states, but still managed to be totally ignored by the ma mainstream media. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What was you worked for Gary Johnson's campaign and, and and fought very hard to get him elected? You know how hard was it to get him recognized? by the national media and get him out there so voters could see his views and find a third party as opposed to just the two party it dictatorship. Was, it was extremely frustrating. First of all, Gary Johnson was an eminently qualified candidate. You got a very successful two-term governor in New Mexico, somebody who cut taxes, cut spending, balanced the budget, and, and created more jobs than any other governor in the country during that period of time. So no one could argue that he was a fringe candidate or he was a, a symbolic candidate. He was fully qualified to be president of the United States. He got on the ballot in 48 states, which is a difficult, time-consuming, expensive process. But he theoretically could have won 270 electoral votes. So I don't know how you justified keeping him out of the debates. The Presidential Commission on Debates is not appointed by the president. It's not a commission, and it's certainly not about open debate. Right. Um, so uh, it was very frustrating because we, we were, at the one hand, we're looking at all these polls telling us that 68, 69% of the people unhappy with their choices. I wish there was another candidate. Well, there was, they just didn't know about it. You know, it's interesting when you, you know, we referenced earlier this kind of coup d'etat that took place on November 22nd. Uh, in your time in, in Washington and in politics, did you feel the repercussions of that coup d'etat? Sure. Know, of, of that kind of, you know, seeping and, you know, kind of creeping energy. I, I think place. I think it's the tech second coup d'etat we have. Really? Uh, a, a terrific uh, piece written by Jesse Ventura and Dick Russell. It connects the dots between the Bay of Pigs, the Kennedy assassination, and Watergate. Richard Nixon was brought down because he was attempting to get the CIA records that proved their involvement in the JFK assassination. Why? Because he wanted it for leverage. Right. He wanted it for leverage against being removed himself. So I believe the Watergate break-in was dreamed up by G. Gordon Liddy and Jeb Stuart Magruder and John W. Dean, who pushed it more than anyone else. Uh, but once they... Uh, once they recruited James McCord, a CIA agent, he briefed the agency and they decided here was their opportunity to bring down Nixon, bring who was threatening the, the Central Intelligence Agency, the same way JFK was, ironically. So I, I think he undid himself, but not without sabotage. And then right the there, now you have, you know, now that's a clear message to the two parties. We'll 
take out Kennedy and we'll take out, you know, Nixon. You know, we'll take out Democrat and we'll take out yeah, Republicans. The, the, so no, don't try to play any games. The military industrial complex is not ideological. They're about money and power. They're neither right nor left. They will invent a candidate on the right and left if they need one. So people were upset about George W. Bush. So they created Barack Obama, who's fully un unqualified to be president of the United States, who served in the state Senate and the U.S. Senate, but has uh, and has uh, fought, who has written uh, two biographies, but no major legislation of any kind. So uh, the, the military industrial complex, the American media establishment, they can go right or left depending on what's required at the time. What's required at the time and coming out of, a, you know, it makes sense because coming out of, you know, the Bush presidency with Cheney and all of that, we're very, we're feeling very constricted. We're feeling very down. We need to get a new champion of the people. So let's get well, this Plus, guy. they take advantage of the, the democratic change. We have more and more minority voters. So maybe it was time for the first minority president. Uh, being black was not a detriment to his candidacy. It wasn't was an asset to his candidacy. Yeah, it's groundbreaking. Just like just like uh, uh, Kennedy's being Catholic mm -hmm. was a benefit, not not a uh, not a uh, a drawback. In fact, uh, Bobby Kennedy had millions of pieces of violently anti-Catholic literature attacking John Kennedy printed. He put Hubert Humphrey's name on it and he mailed it to the voters in West Virginia. <laughs> All the Catholic households only. Wow. wow. Uh, being Catholic was a was an asset for him, not a liability. Mm -hmm. It, you know, in, it, well, it's interesting when we were talking about Bush too. Is that you know, I'd read that you were involved with the the, the 2000 election and what I was. happened there. You know, could you get into that a little bit? Because you know, a lot of people have said that you you know, a lot of people obviously still disagree with what happened with that. Sure. Uh, and they feel that the Supreme Court acted wrong in terms of you know electing a president or, or saying this is who should be president because you know technically it's supposed to go to the Congress and let them vote. You know, what was your experience with that and how do you feel uh, about that today? I did not work on George W. Bush's campaign. Okay. Uh, when I worked for the Reagan White House, uh, when I worked for the Reagan campaigns, I became very friendly uh, with Jim Baker, James A. Mm -hmm. Baker III, the mm -hmm. White House Chief of Staff. Uh, in 1981, I was running the campaign of Tom Kane for governor of New Jersey. Um, it was very close. It was an off-year election. It was very, very close. Uh, I went to Baker and I asked Baker to uh, persuade the president to visit New Jersey. At the very last minute, he did. We won by 1,200 votes wow, out of two and a half million. Very good. So I, in my business, I was a man who owed a debt. Mm. I had a chit. Mm -hmm. So when Jim Baker called me and said, I need you to go to Florida and work on this recount, I, I was in no position as a political professional to say no, even mm -hmm. though George W. Bush and his father were never my cup of tea. Uh, and also everything is relative. I'd never thought Al Gore would be a great president. So I went down there and uh, in Miami-Dade County, the Democrats were seeking to recount the same ballots a third time. So people say Stone closed down the recount. No, I closed down an attempt to recount the same ballots three times when there had been no change. And the so-called Brooks Brothers riot yeah, that was happened when two Democrats took a sheaf of ballots and tried to go behind closed doors into a room with no windows, no doors, and no neutral observers in violation of the state's uh, sunshine law. So uh, that obviously that caused the disruption. I don't think we'll, I, I think it is impossible to know who actually won the election. Uh, and therefore the Supreme Court's decision made a decision for us because uh, Al Gore made a fundamental dis, uh, mistake in not requiring a recount in every Florida county. He played politics too. Uh, and he only chose to recount in those counties where he thought he would gain votes. He was afraid to count in other counties. 
And I think that mistake really cost him the presidency more than anything else. More than anything else. I do feel that there was an element. I mean, when you look at kind of the direction the country went in after Bush, you know, a lot of a lot of conspiracy theorists will look at that kind of what happened there and then look at like today and where we're at as a country and say, you know, if we needed to have Bush come in to kind of push the project for the new American century and get all those guys in, you know, brings about 9-11, brings about the security state that we're in. Do you do you ever did you ever get wind or did you feel that there was kind of a hidden I, hand? There? I, I am not that conspiracy minded. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that uh, that the uh, that George W. Bush in his main handler, Carl Rove, correctly recognized there was an opportunity because people had Clinton fatigue mm -hmm. and they were sick of the Clinton abuses and and eight years of Bill Clinton created a political opportunity. The the Bush name was still a good name from his father's presidency. Mm -hmm. His father has this um, kind of goofy, almost likable, you know, persona which shouldn't kid you. He is a very competitive, very disciplined, very ambitious technocrat who believed in power and crony capitalism and money. He had no ideology at all. Mm. He could be a moderate Republican. He could be a conservative Republican. He could be a Rockefeller Republican. He could be a Goldwater Republican. Well, he came out of the CIA at right. the end of the day. He's so, following the kind of- Right, and, so, so he could be whatever he needed to be politically. Mm. He tried to run for the US Senate twice in Texas, was defeated both times. The first time he ran as a right winger. The second time he ran as a moderate Republican. Didn't work either way. Uh, so uh, I'm not quite as conspiratorial about it, but I would have to admit to you, and I've writ written a piece to this extent, that I might not have worked on the recount if I had known we were going to Afghanistan. Right. I'm, or pardon me, if I'd known we were going to Iraq. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand why we were in Iraq. It makes no if it wasn't about oil and money, because it certainly wasn't about democracy. No. It had, you know, if it was about democracy, when are the Saudis having their election? When is that? Exactly. Exactly. You know, where where do you see our country headed? You know, from the research you've done with JFK and like all of your years in politics, where do you see us going? Uh, I wish I could be more optimistic. I think the biggest problem we have in America today is that we have more takers than we have producers. So the government's going to turn around and buy the votes with our own tax money, whether it is I'll give you free health care, or I'll give you a college scholarship, or I'll give you a bigger welfare payment, or I'll give you a cell phone uh, for votes. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous uh, uh, thing. I also think that the country is changing demographically so that a majority in California and Texas, for example, would be Hispanic. Uh, and therefore, it, it, for the Republicans, if they don't find a way to appeal to those voters, they're going to go the way of the Whigs. Mm. And I could see a complete upheaval. Mm. Uh, but uh, this, my experience with the book um, has been educational because um, the cover-up continues. The New York Times won't cover this book. Mm. The Washington Post won't cover this book. Uh, Huffington Post, a very good friend of mine, Christian Josie, who was a columnist for them, in there, been at Huffington Post from the very beginning, has never had a, a, anything he wrote turned down or even edited. Um, wrote a piece on this book, an excellent piece, and they spiked it. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to be on CNN last night, last night. fully scheduled. They even bought me uh, a transportation. They bought me train tickets to DC. Uh, at the last minute, the chairman of CNN, Chairman Emeritus, Tom Johnson, a member of the LBJ Library Board, a, <laughs> an LBJ psychophant, uh, uh, pressures them to uh, to spike the segment. Mm. So the cover-up continues even today. And the good news is that shows like this allow us to get the truth out. Do you feel that something like a Kennedy assassination and, a, and that kind of coup d'etat, do you feel that that could happen again? 
I think it'd be much, much tougher because of the internet, because of our ability to share information quickly. And therefore, it'd be much harder for the government to stage a cover-up. The information flow in 1963, like I say, was so limited that if you had all three uh, networks, you kind of had it. So, for example, the famous piece of videotape, which in the last week you've seen a hundred times of Walter Cronkite. Yeah. You know, the president died at 1.33 today, some 40 minutes ago. And then he goes on to say, Vice President Johnson will take the oath of office which will make him the president of the United States. That's completely false. Mm. Under our constitution, when the president dies, the vice president is automatically elevated. There's no oath necessary. So the famous picture of of Johnson taking the oath, that was strictly symbolic. That was power grabbing. And we now know that Lyndon Johnson called Robert Kennedy at the Justice Department. The attorney general, he says, hey, uh, Bobby, read me the oath. That's right. Just yeah. uh, He's just sticking the knife in to twist it. That's all that was. Wow, wow. What, you know, just finish up, you know, what, what do you feel have been your greatest accomplishments uh, in politics? Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, was, uh, was an anti-establishment figure of his time. People lose sight of this now, but the smart money, the establishment money was with Big John Connolly and George W. Bush. So Reagan was a, from the West Coast. He was a Westerner. He was a cowboy movie actor. He was another Goldwater and so on. I do think that he made some fundamental changes. Was he perfect? No. Spending continued to rise under, uh, under Reagan. Um, he, he was not perfect. But one of the themes of my book is that none of our political no, leaders yeah. are perfect. And we need to wake up to that. You know, uh, I think as a country, we need to stop buying that media thing of just the, 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 that they're are, perfect and they should be perfect. Right. And, you know. Right. So I would have to say my involvement with Reagan is the thing that I am proudest of. Um, but after that, I would have to point you to this book because uh, it is it's this is 10 years in the writing and 30 years in the concept uh, since 1964. Um, I began to realize that Lyndon Johnson is a serial murderer. Mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson could order a murder the way you and I would order a ham sandwich. Uh, this is someone who is intrinsically evil, uh, uh, devious, duplicitous, uh, drunk. Uh, this is not to somebody who ever should have been president of the United States. Uh, and uh, he delivered millions in war profits to his friends in the military industrial complex, to his friends in the defense contracting industry. Um, uh, so had Kennedy lived, I think we would have ended the war in Vietnam. I think we would have normalized relationships with Cuba. Uh, I think that we uh, that we would have had a very different um, history. I think Johnson and his cronies in the establishment changed the direction of history well, that, through, through this coup d'etat. Well, that and yeah, with the killings of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And, and I'm convinced that that, uh, that the same people who killed John Kennedy killed Robert Kennedy. And I think in Northern California, only days before his murder, he said to a student group, that he would reopen the investigation That's to right. his brother's desk. That had to uh, to uh, send chills up the spine of the CIA mm-hmm. and their and their associates in in the mob. I mean, we know that the CIA never told the Warren Commission we've been working with organized crime to assassinate Castro. No. The FBI never told the Warren Commission that yes, Lee Harvey Oswald had been a paid informant. Uh, that Jack Ruby had been a paid informant. So Oswald goes to New Orleans. He gets into a fist fight while he's handing out pro Castro. He gets arrested. They take him to jail. He has one phone call. Who does he call? His wife, his lawyer? 
No, he calls the head of the FBI in New Orleans. <laughs> and an hour and a half later, he's out on the street and the charges are dropped. Yeah, no, no. I think clearly anyone looking at it knows that Lee Harvey Oswald had intelligence hands written all over him. Well, what's interesting is that the government has concluded that. In no. other words, it's not- The House Select right. Committee on Assassination. Well, let's start, with, let's start with, the, with the subcommittee of the Church Committee, uh, no. chaired by Senator Richard Schweiker, a very close friend of mine. Yeah. They established that, that Oswald uh, is an asset of the CIA. Uh, Robert Plumley has now said that, a former CIA official. Victor Marchetti confirms it. Um, we know that uh, that uh, that uh, Anthony Venciana says that he met his uh, his CIA handler, David Atlee Phillips, in a uh, in the lobby of a tech, of a Dallas office building, and he saw him with Lee Harvey Oswald. So, for the FBI and the CIA to deny knowledge of Oswald. To the Warren Commission means that nothing else they told the Warren Commission can be believed. What is up next for you? Uh, I think I am going to write a book uh, on the Clintons. Really? Yes, I think that there's a major expose there. I think that is also uh, very much like this. It's a story that involves uh, power, intrigue, sex, and murder. Mm. I think that's next. That's interesting. Well, keep us posted on what happens with that book. Thank you very much for joining us today, Roger. Thank you. Thank you. It's Tyrell Ventura with a fascinating edition of Buzzsaw. Thank you all for joining us. Take care. do what I want to do today is I want to uh, uh, discuss the the assassination because uh, with you in some detail because I want you to be able to discuss this uh, with your family uh, and with your friends and uh, and neighbors uh, throughout the rest of the your life really to be able to talk about it in a very informed way uh, and the fact that President Kennedy was assassinated uh, in 1963 is a, is a very terrible uh, event, and it was very sad for, for virtually everybody in the country. Uh, and as important as it was for the strategic impact that it had at that time on the potentials for completing a nuclear arms disagreement, uh, for uh, ending the Vietnam War uh, much, much earlier uh, than was the case historically, and the saving of millions of uh, lives that uh, could have been saved if, if uh, Kennedy had not been assassinated and was successful in, in bringing the, the war to an earlier end, and for the potential dismemberment of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, that should have logically happened. Uh, despite uh, as strategic uh, as the assassination was in having an impact upon those events out of history, uh, these are not really 
the most terrible aspects uh, of the assassination. That the, the most terrible aspect of the assassination is once you understand who did it uh, and who all was involved in covering it up, uh, then it, it'll be, be very, very clear that the most dangerous aspect of this and the most horrible aspect of it is that it can happen again. Uh, because the people who did it were not brought to justice. The people who were involved in covering it up were, were never revealed or brought to justice. And for that reason, the effectiveness of the assassination still remains uh, with politicians today who realize what it is that can happen uh, to them if they cross these particular people. So uh, unless and until we, that is your generation and my generation, the millennialists and the baby boomers, uh, join together to effectively reveal what it is that really happened uh, surrounding this assassination and take the steps necessary to deconstruct the structural sources uh, that generated this particular assassination, it will, uh, it not only can, but it almost certainly will happen again. Uh, so that we, we want to address this issue directly here in the class. As you know, this isn't what the class is all about. Uh, what the class is all about is, uh, is elucidating the, uh, the kind of elite core of, of virtually all men who basically from behind the scenes manipulate United States domestic and foreign policy. Uh, And as we'll touch upon in the final uh, couple lectures, we'll see that this has been happening virtually ever since the beginning uh, of the country. But there was this especially uh, tragic uh, period when this occurred that we've covered in the class up to date, uh, this whole period from the end of the American Civil War all the way up into including World War I and World War II and its aftermath that led to the assassination of President Kennedy. We're going to deal with a lot of the post-assassination history in the last few classes that we have together. But that what I wanted to focus on here today is, is discussing the, the sort of the particulars uh, because uh, so what I want to do is I want to go through uh, basically uh, uh, I guess five, six different steps here between today and Thursday with you. Uh, the first thing that I want to do here today is I want to set forth for you some of the a dozen of the critical findings of fact and pieces of evidence. Uh, that are pointed to by the Warren Commission and uh, and by people like Vincent Bugliosi, uh, who wrote this big tome. Uh, this called uh, uh, what do you call this thing? Recovering history. What is it? Reclaiming. Reclaiming history. He called it. It's this big, like 800-page book. Uh, and Gerald Posner, uh, another another fellow who uh, wrote another book. These are two of the kind of definitive works that have been written trying to debunk the conspiracy theories 
uh, in effect, defending uh, and, and trying to bolster the findings of the Warren Commission. And uh, this is, these are the findings in addition to the Warren Commission that have been uh, embraced by virtually all three of the uh, major television networks, you know, ABC and CBS and NBC, and their, and their principal uh, uh, anchor people, uh, from uh, Dan Rather to Peter Jennings and to others, uh, that, uh, and, and all of the major news, newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, that these are, these are the, the uh, uh, major news outlets for people. And CNN has now uh, joined in this kind of uh, dance that they do. They did at the 50th anniversary of basically uh, setting forth this same thesis of, uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald being the lone deranged gunman that killed the president. Uh, and uh, and the, 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 this is what I wanna do first, therefore, is to lay out what the some uh, dozen or so key pieces of evidence are that they keep citing to. Then secondly, what I wanna do is I wanna set forth what I think are the now virtually uncontested uh, pieces of evidence that show that virtually every one of those major dozen premises uh, are fatally flawed. Uh, and uh, then thirdly, I want to set forth what are, are uh, pieces of previously concealed information that were actively concealed by the FBI, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Department, the National Security Apparatus, that, that intentionally concealed these pieces of evidence during the investigation. Uh, and then what I wanna do is I wanna set forth the key factual evidence that explains what uh, most persuasively uh, ought to be the conclusions as to what it is that actually happened surrounding the assassination. And uh, very importantly, who greenlighted this assassination and who covered up the assassination. So those are the 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 four uh, major or the six major steps I want to go through in in presenting this. But I want to then afterwards put it into the larger context of the overall course that we're engaged in right now, because I said this isn't a course just about the assassination, but the assassination is one of the more dramatic uh, moments in demonstrating the potential dangers of this particular cabal. Uh, in in our country, uh, and then I want to go on to uh, to discuss why it's so important that we understand it. Yes, Sophia. Um, so I want to start with a question that my both my dad has raised and that I've heard skeptics raise a million bazillion times. Um, and see, I know that you, I know that you know the real sports. I know you talk to people involved, but. Um, how would you answer people, just to start out, how would you answer people who say the fact that nobody has come out and spilled the beans to the public in 50 years is evidence that there was nothing going on? Because apparently some scientists did a study and figured out that most genuine conspiracies come out within a certain amount of time. It's usually something more like 10, 20, 30 years, not 50 Okay. Well, there's a couple obvious answers to that. Number one is that 
the only conspiracies that they know about that have actually come out are those that have come out. <laughs> and that uh, those that have been successfully perpetrated uh, and have still remained concealed, no one knows about. And so that, that that's kind of almost dispositive of that particular argument. Uh, and, uh, and, and secondly, there are conspiracies that have come out only because uh, someone has fought all the way through uh, the cover-ups and the concealments and someone has been ultimately successful in digging through them and getting them exposed. And I know that I have and my staff have been those people uh, actually in a number of instances. And so I know personally that if we hadn't done it, that those conspiracies would remain today unknown. So I, I know dramatically uh, that in fact, there are conspiracies that have occurred that have in fact never been revealed. Uh, and so that it's directly contrary to any kind of assumption that well, all the conspiracies that actually have ever happened have all been publicly revealed. Okay, and so that, that what I'll do is in, in laying out uh, the pieces of evidence here, a lot of times you'll see that there are in fact significant numbers of people who now know that this was in fact a conspiracy, not the least of which was the House Select Committee on Assassinations that actually came to that determination and made an official request of the Justice Department to investigate it, uh, and the Justice Department refused to do it. Uh, okay, so the, 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 the major uh, third part of the answer to your, your, your father's uh, position, Sophia, is that, is that there are major uh, powerful influences arrayed to close off any type of major public dissemination of a lot of, of this information. Uh, and those, those sources where you can disseminate a lot of it are ones that a lot of people don't know about, that uh, they, they, there's been no public endorsement, no official government recognition of it. It's a lot like people saying, well, if in, fa if in fact there was such a thing as UFOs, why wouldn't the government have said something about this? You know, and in, but in fact, you can find police officers and the chief investigator of the Federal Aviation Agency, you know, full-scale uh, three-star generals in the United States Army that have gone to great lengths to try to reveal the information about this and have been fired and disciplined over it. You know, and yet the people who don't uh, know about that, who don't pay enough attention to the subject to know that these things has happened, they can go merrily along and make these kind of assertions. Uh, no, no reflections on your father. Uh, but, the, but the fact is that they, they conflate their level of ignorance with reality. Uh, and so that what we, we want to do here is I want to, uh, as a first step, uh, I want to point out a dozen or so of the key factual assertions uh, about the assassination uh, and what the flaws in those pieces of evidence are. And what I'm going to do at the end, depending upon the time that we have, I'm going to play for you the final lecture that I gave in the uh, in the 20 lecture course on the alternative theories of the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, this one has been uh, not made available publicly. Uh, just the people that were in the class know about this uh, because because pardon.
Okay, because the editor of the book that I'm writing and the HBO television uh, program that they're probably going to do about it don't want this disseminated throughout the entire public. Uh, but it's going to be disseminated uh, throughout the public uh, later uh, in this HBO series, a television series, probably. probably okay. So that first, so the first thing I want to do is let, let's go through uh, chronologically. Uh, some of these major pieces of evidence that they keep putting up in front. They, that number one is that you, you need to remember that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was not arrested for killing President Kennedy. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for allegedly killing Dallas Police Department officer J.D. Tippett. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, that arrest uh, was followed by the quote eyewitness testimony of a Miss uh, a Miss Helen Markham, who the Warren Commission sets forth and all of the major news media set forth as the person who definitively identified Lee Harvey Oswald as the man having killed J.D. Tippett, therefore justifying theoretically his arrest for killing Officer Tippett. Uh, which allegedly led to the additional evidence against him. Now, who the heck was mm. Officer Tippett? No, please, please don't. Okay, no, I'm, 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 that's that's what I'm doing. That's what we're here for is to talk about that. Okay, so, so, so the bottom line is is that uh, this is the the uh, the piece of evidence. The first one is that well, he killed uh, Officer J D Tippett, so he's a murderer. So that's that's established. And that's been established by an eyewitness account of him having committed the murder. So we know we've got a murderer on our hands here. Uh, and as it turns out, very conveniently, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald dropped his wallet uh, at the scene of killing J.D. Tippett. Uh, just happened to have left his wallet there with all of his identification in it. Uh, and he also allegedly... Uh, after killing J.D. Tippett uh, in front of several people, only one of whom has allegedly identified him as being the person who did it, that he allegedly turned around and opened up the cylinder on his 38 revolver and dumped all of the shells, the spent shells, right on the ground. Uh, and that, that those, those shells that were ejected onto the ground matched the bullets and shells that were found in uh, his gun when he was arrested at the Texas uh, theater uh, within an hour uh, after the, the shooting of J.D. Tippett. And then, of course, the fifth fact they keep pointing out is that the Manlicker Carcano rifle that was used to kill the president was found hidden in amongst the cardboard boxes at the Texas School Book Depository within an hour after the killing of the president. And this Manlicker Carcano had been ordered through the mail by a person uh, using the identification of A. Hidel. And that in the wallet that was found uh, at the murder scene of, of police officer J.D. Tippett, there was a false uh, ID in the wallet 
in addition to Lee Harvey Oswald's driver's license, a photo driver's license, there was also a photo ID of him as a Hidel. And that, uh, and uh, there was also a palm print of Lee Harvey Oswald uh, uh, found on the Manlicker Carcano rifle. And paraffin tests uh, uh, performed on Lee Harvey Oswald after he was arrested in the Texas theater showed that he had fired a weapon uh, recently. Uh, and uh, in addition, there's an extremely important piece of evidence that, uh, that there was a, a neutron activation analysis performed on the fragments of the bullets that were fired into the limousine that were found scattered in the, in the, the seats of the limousine and taken from the brain of President Kennedy and taken from the wrist of Governor Connolly that all match the, uh, the magic bullet that was found lying on the stretcher uh, of Governor Connolly uh, at the Parkland Hospital that had uh, passed through President Kennedy, striking him in the back and coming out his throat and, and hitting uh, uh, Governor Connolly in the back and coming out of his chest and then hitting him in the wrist and then lodging in his leg. Uh, and that the tests that were performed, uh, these, uh, these uh, neutron activated analysis tests by Dr. Vincent Gwynn uh, established that these were all uh, from the same bullet. Uh, and it was proven that that bullet was fired from the Manlicker Carcano rifle that had uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's palm print on it uh, and had been ordered by Ahidel, uh, which the identification for which they found in his wallet. Uh, and, that, uh, and that the three, that the, as I said, the, the, the shell casings, uh, the three rifle Manlicker Carcano shell casings that were found lying by the window of the sixth floor in the Texas School Depository were all shown by the strike mark on the on the uh, the fire the, of the firing pin from the Manlicker Carcano rifle onto the back of the bullet uh, found on those casings. All were shown to have been fired by the Manlicker Carcano rifle, and finally that there was a palm print. Uh, of Lee Harvey Oswald found on the boxes in the sniper's nest uh, out of the sixth floor window of the school book depository. Now, after an opening statement like that uh, by the prosecutor, you're sitting in the jury and you're going, well, uh, I guess this is gonna be easy. Uh, this guy obviously did the killing of the president. Okay, but you start going down through these, and one of the major challenges is that there has never been any effective trial uh, about this. So that all that you're getting is the information set forth by the prosecutor. Uh, this the the Warren Commission. Uh, uh, the Warren Commission is a prosecutorial document, uh, and the fact is that you can tell by reading. Uh, if you read through the actual volumes of the Warren report, 
which had to be compiled right within one year because they wanted to get the report out by the November 22nd anniversary uh, of the of the killing, and which would have made it November 22nd of 1964. Uh, that the that if you read through the documents, you will see that all of the interviews that were being conducted by the FBI agents, et cetera, were clearly engaged in an adversarial process, even against the witnesses, trying to compel the witnesses to say very specific things that they wanted them to say. Uh, uh, and uh, secondly, uh, this Helen Louise Markham, who is the, the sole witness out of the six different people who saw the person who uh, shot uh, Officer Tippett, uh, she is the only one who identified allegedly Lee Harvey Oswald. But when you in fact read her interviews, uh, specifically uh, an interview conducted by Mark Lane, uh, an attorney from New York that uh, interviewed her about this, she states that the, the person who shot uh, Officer Tippett was short, heavy set, and had bushy, long, bushy, dark, curly hair. Okay, uh, uh, and the fact is that when she was brought in to identify Lee Harvey Oswald, she never identified Lee Harvey Oswald as the person who killed Officer Tippett. She was asked by the officer in charge of the lineup is there anyone in the lineup that looks familiar to you? And it turns out that she had already seen the photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald that were on the television uh, after his having been arrested and brought to the, to the police station. That's confirmed that she'd already seen his photograph. And she was only asked, Do, is there anyone in the lineup that you recognize? And she said, uh, well, when I look at the person who's in position number two, all I know is that I get a cold chill when I look at him. And that's all she said, okay? And so that they said, okay, that's it. She has positively identified him. And now uh, that case is closed. He is the killer, okay? Uh, so that in number three, uh, the issue of the wallet being found right at the scene of the death of uh, J.D. Tippett, it turns out that uh, this particular wallet was allegedly found by a Sergeant Kenneth Croy at the scene and then turned over to Captain uh, R. Westbrook. Uh, and, uh, and there's a photograph, actually a local television station uh, filming at the scene of the Tippett death, where they you can see uh, you can see uh, Sergeant Croy handing the wallet to uh, to Captain Westbrook, and so that they assert that therefore this is found at the scene and it attaches him directly to the scene of the killing. The problem with that is is that when you and that's set forth in the Warren Commission. However, when you actually look at the, the records uh, of the police department, it turns out that uh, the wallet of, uh, of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was removed from his left rear pocket by an officer, Paul Bentley, after, uh, after Oswald was arrested in the Texas uh, movie theater. 
and he was in the back seat of the patrol car and that uh, he is he has testified to that and uh, and in fact uh, a another uh, Gerald officer Gerald Hill who was with him in the squad car testifies to that effect that that's where they got his wallet uh, from him okay and now you you go to the the, the scene of the death and you find these four ejected uh, shell casings and what it said in the Warren Commission report is it said ah it said these shell casings that were found were in fact a combination a combination of uh, Remington uh, 38 cartridges in Winchester Western uh, uh, shell casings and when Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested in the Texas uh, movie theater when he was seized and they took his revolver from him, he had in the revolver bullets that were a mixture or combination of Remington uh, 38 uh, bullets and, uh, and Winchester Westerns in his pistol. And so they said, so there, now there's another incriminating piece of information. What they don't tell you is that at the scene of J.D. Tippett's killing, that there of the four uh, spent shell casings that were found, two of them were Winchester Westerns, two of them were Remington 38s. And dug out of the body of J.D. Tippett were three Winchester Western slugs and one Remington slug, 38. And nobody talks about that. It's just that somehow this fellow gets four slugs in him, three of which are Winchester Westerns, and one of them is a Remington. And on the ground are found four shell casings, two Winchesters and two Remingtons. And uh, and there's also a, a fact that is left undisclosed, and that is is that this... Uh, identification, this photo ID of uh, of Oswald, uh, allegedly found in his wallet in the name of A. Hidel, they leave out the fact that in uh, the first week of November of 1963, some 20 days prior to the assassination, a fellow by the name of Richard Nagel was arrested down in El Paso, Texas after having come into a bank and walked into the bank and fired uh, his pistol into the ceiling of the bank and then sat down in his car waiting for the police to come. And they came and they arrested him for attempted bank robbery. And he said, you ought to look in my trunk of my car. And they looked in the trunk of his car and they found identification uh, under the name of A. Hidel for Richard Nagel with photo ID of Lee Harvey Oswald in the name of A. Hidel, both of them. And it turns out that this uh, Richard Nagel was a member of the field uh, operations intelligence a uh, an investigatory group 
that was founded in Dallas, Texas by Charles Willoughby and H.L. Hunt and William D. Pauley back in 1952. Uh, one year after they founded the organization called Foreign Intelligence Digest. And it, and it turns out that the, uh, that the, uh, they also left out the fact that uh, when, uh, when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald returned from Russia, uh, having spent some 18 months in Russia, he was met at the port in Hoboken, New Jersey, by a man by the name of Spaz Rakin, S-P-A-S, last name R-A-I-K-I-N, on June 13th, 1962. And Spaz Rakin worked as the deputy to the head of the, anti, the Eastern European Anti-Bolshevik League, a man by the name of, uh, of Stetsko. Uh, yes, yes, it's not a Stanislav, but anyway, Stetsko, his name is. He was uh, the head of the, the Eastern European Anti-Bolshevik League, an extreme right-wing element. Uh, and this person was a full-time correspondent for the Foreign Intelligence Digest that was actually established by uh, William Pauley and H.L. Hunt and Charles Willoughby in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and and uh, also they forget to tell you about the palm print that was allegedly found on the, uh, the Mannlicher Carcano rifle that the FBI lab had filed an official report stating that they had examined the entire rifle and there were no prints of any kind on the rifle. And it was an officer uh, in the, the Dallas Police Department uh, who said that he found the prints uh, of the palm print on the rifle after the FBI had already definitively determined that there were no palm prints on it. And there is a record of this particular officer and his partner having gone to the uh, the room where where Lee Harvey Oswald's body was being kept after he was assassinated uh, two days later by Jack Ruby, uh, and going into the room where his body was uh, and locking the door and had carried with them some long uh, package, uh, and that is that is uh, also uh, not talked about. But, but uh, and uh, extremely importantly, uh, they didn't tell you about the fact that Governor John Connolly, sitting in the front seat uh, of the, uh, or in the middle seat, the jump seat of the limousine with President uh, Kennedy, uh, in fact, is absolutely emphatic that he was not hit by the same bullet that hit President Kennedy, because Connolly asserts emphatically that he heard the shot. Uh, that hit the president, and he turned around to his right trying to see the president. He could hear him struggling in the back seat and started to turn around the other way. And, uh, and as he got halfway back around, he was shot. But President Kennedy had already been sitting in the back seat holding onto his throat uh, before, uh, before Connolly was ever shot. 
Uh, and in fact, there's a photo in the Zapruder film that one of the two of the uh, frames actually show uh, show this event taking place of the president reaching and grabbing his throat. And at the time, uh, John Connolly is is sitting, waving, holding his white Stetson cowboy hat in his right hand, uh, looking and trying to turn around to the right to look to see what's happening to the president. And so that either the bullet was going so slowly that it went through the president and hadn't quite gotten to Connolly yet. By the time he turned all the way around to look and then turned halfway all the way back around and it hit him. When you can see him being hit by the, hit, the bullet that hit him and the white Stetson going flying because his right wrist was shattered by the bullet that hit him. Uh, and they also uh, fail to tell you that Dr. Gwynn, the man who is alleged to have performed the, uh, the uh, uh, neutron activation analysis on these particles found in the front seat, uh, asserts uh, that emphatically he was never given any of the particles uh, of metal that were found in the front seat. Uh, or anywhere else in the limousine, uh, despite the fact that he is cited as the person who performed uh, these tests. Uh, and all of the doctors that were at the Parkland Hospital that based upon their medical expertise, that they knew that the, that the wound in the front of the throat of President Kennedy was in fact an entrance wound. Uh, and not an exit wound. Moreover, uh, the assertion of the Warren Commission uh, trying to get the, all the three shots that they say were fired, they say all three shots were fired uh, by uh, Oswald from the sixth floor depository building, uh, all within 6.5 seconds. And it turns out that no one was able to duplicate that. No one was even able to fire three shots from the rifle within 6.5 seconds. The closest that they got were eight seconds and they were absolute arm, uh, armament experts and they had the rifle bolted down and that they, they fired it and, and moved the bolt action and fired it and moved the bolt action and wasn't aimed at or hit anything. And yet what they're asserting is that is that uh, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots in 6.5 seconds, uh, hitting the president uh, with two of them and that one of them went through him and hit Connolly. And that's how they explain it. Now, uh, and moreover, the paraffin tests that were run on uh, Lee Harvey Oswald that are cited by the Warren Commission proved dispositively that he had never fired a rifle because the paraffin tests that were on his face, which he would have, if he had fired the rifle, would have left gunpowder residue on his face. <clears throat> and there were four other people that were, uh, had, that were, that fired that man liquor in tests and all four of them had gunpowder residue on their face. <clears throat> uh, and so that, uh, there are there are a panoply 
uh, of information and facts that have not been <clears throat> revealed in the uh, in the Warren report uh, and are consistently ignored by the major television networks uh, and by all of the major news media. Uh, not the least of which is now that we know about that there is a photograph uh, that was taken in Dealey Plaza 1.2 seconds before the first shot hits the president. And it is a photograph of William Rip Robertson uh, standing on the curb, uh, on the, the northern curb of Elm Street, tipping his hat to President Kennedy. And you can see the limousine in the, in the foreground of the picture and, and uh, Robertson tipping his hat to the president. Standing next to him is Grayson Lynch, a man who is uh, the person who uh, often worked with Rip Robertson in missions that he went on. And Rip Robertson is the man who was standing immediately next to William D. Pauley on the night of June 19th of 1963, some five months earlier, uh, in the presence of Dick Billings, telling John Martino, don't worry, John, we're going to kill the motherfucker. And that's Rip Robertson, who was standing next to him, standing on the, the curb immediately next to the limousine, tipping his hat to the president 1.2 seconds before the first shot rings out and, and hits the president. <clears throat> There's also a photograph in Dealey Plaza of Edward G. Lansdale, who is walking past these hobos, these hobos that have been taken out of a boxcar in behind the grassy knoll, that they've been taken into custody and they're being marched off. Uh, and uh, he is walking past them giving these hand signals to them. <clears throat> and and uh, the photograph of Edward Lansdale has been identified by his wife as being him definitively. Uh, and he's been identified by uh, Fletcher Prouty, who was the head of the, uh, he was the liaison between the CIA Covert Operations Directorate and the Joint Special Operations uh, uh, Agency of the, uh, the United States Pentagon providing military support to paramilitary operations by the CIA when Ed Lansdale was actually working in the Central Intelligence Agency. <clears throat> and you'll remember Ed Lansdale is the fellow who found the 12 troves of gold and platinum uh, and, uh, and silver and jewels in the Philippines that were placed in the Anderson Trust. And so you ask yourself, what is William Rip Robertson doing in Dealey Plaza? And why is Ed Lansdale there? And the, this, is a, this is one plaza that is on a several mile uh, caravan of, of the president driving from the airport all the way through Dallas on his way to deliver a, a speech at lunch and in uh, of the hundreds of different locations along the parade route, there's one particular spot where Rip Robertson and Grayson Lynch are standing on the street corner and Ed Lansdale is there uh, in the same plaza, okay? Uh, now they also fail to 
reveal any of the information and it's still concealed to this day. There's still this uh, major position taken by the Warren Commission and by all of the major news media asserting that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a leftist, Leninist, communist uh, who had defected to Russia and he was disgruntled and unhappy uh, and, and, uh, and a deranged individual. Uh, and they leave out the entire history of Lee Harvey Oswald when he was in the Marine Corps, having been recruited uh, to become a low-level intelligence gathering operative uh, over at, at the uh, uh, the Queen Bee uh, bar next to the U-2 base in uh, in Japan where he was based, and his commander uh, tells that that. Uh, Oswald came back and told him that Oswald was being questioned by the women there, the bar women, asking him questions about the base. And the, the, the his commanding officer states that he, in fact, introduced uh, Oswald to a civilian uh, from a civilian intelligence agency who then began to give money to Oswald to have him go to the Queen Bee and to get in, give false information to these women so that they could track it to see where that false information was going. And it turns out that that man's name was Richard Nagel from the field operations intelligence. Uh, so that, uh, and of course I told you about the, uh, the issue of Operation Tilt with Richard Billings standing on the deck next to William D. Pauley and Rip Robertson and John Martino when uh, Pauley told, told John Martino that they were going to kill the president. Okay, and that uh, I also told you about the fact that uh, Dick Billings uh, came up from below decks uh, the following morning and saw the USS Rex, uh, a, a, a CIA warship that was based in Guantanamo, actually refueling uh, the, the Flying Tiger. Uh, and William Pauley got very distressed over the fact that Dick Billings had seen this. And I told you before, the Rex uh, has been identified as the, the CIA ship that brought a crew of Cuban exiles into Cuba in the first week of November of 1963, just, uh, just at the beginning of the month where the president was killed, the Rex is the ship that brought the Cuban exiles to the island of Cuba and offloaded them. Uh, and it was at the time leased to Collins Radio Corporation. And that Collins Radio Corporation is a place to which uh, George de Morenshield had taken Lee Harvey Oswald to get him a potential job uh, with Collins Radio uh, earlier, uh, so that uh, so that the there's there's uh, myriad evidence uh, that is directly encircling uh, the assassination itself, uh, which is over and above the more general information that we shared with you. Uh, in this major uh, graphic that we that we've constructed here, of the different types of predominantly private organizations that uh, that made up a secret 
primarily private covert operations, a fascist uh, alliance that was operational in the United States at the time of the assassination. And that these are the, these are the people who had, had JFK basically surrounded at this particular time. And so we, we have a, uh, the graphic that I mentioned to you that we're working on now that we'll get to you on Thursday, which has at the core of it, uh, Alan Dulles uh, and the additional players that were directly involved in the assassination itself. So that this, this constitutes a core that sort of resides at the middle of this larger uh, graphic. This sets forth the kind of political, uh, the fascist political milieu uh, in which Kennedy found himself uh, in 1963 as he attempted to, uh, to deconstruct the nuclear warheads of the United States uh, military and the Soviet military and to establish uh, a normalized set of relations with Cuba and Fidel Castro. Uh, and so that these, these are the, uh, just uh, some of the major facts that have not in fact uh, been revealed uh, to you. And, and the fact is, is that uh, I have been able to find uh, these facts. Uh, now it, it is true that that I had at my disposal, you know, six professional investigators, a former military uh, criminal investigators working to dig out this information. But would you stop to compare that to how many investigators the FBI had uh, and that the CIA had and that the United States Congress had? You can see that any good faith effort uh, to at the Warren Commission had you know, that any good faith effort could have revealed all of this information. And yet the information was not sought and if sought and obtained was concealed from the American people. Uh, so what, what I want to do is I, and we'll, we'll discuss, start discussing Thursday, what the implications of all of this are. But what I want to, what I want to do is I want to be able to uh, to play for you, uh, the uh, this is the this is the final lecture. Th this is the final lecture uh, of the twenty lecture series of the the uh, alternative theories of the Kennedy assassination that in fact uh, haven't been hasn't been seen yet by anybody except the, the folks that were in that class. Yes, Andrew. Um, I'm just curious, it might be a little bit off topic, but like given all this information, it's pretty striking. Like it's surprising that there hasn't been a lot of public knowledge, but then there's other things like the MLK assassination where the government admitted that they did it. The CIA said in a lawsuit that they did it and settled with the King family, and yet it's still unknown. Is there, do you think that there's like, what is that? What's like the mechanism of concealment that seems to keep things so? Well, they didn't. They didn't say they'd done it. What? What? This like settlement. The settlements always have a provision in them saying that we're not admitting anything. 
that whatever the settlement is, it's just too bothersome for us to have to deal with this. That's the line that they always take. And that there's always a provision in there saying that this is not acknowledging any kind of guilt or responsibility for the ultimate accusation that has been made, the gravamen of the complaint. Uh, but we're just settling this because it's it's uh, it's too troublesome and burdensome to to resist it. Uh, and that's all it takes. That you need to understand that the standard for these major corporate-owned media is plausible deniability. Uh, and, and not much emphasis on the plausible. Uh, all they have to have is some kind of rationale, like my dog ate my homework, you know, uh, my mother's horse died and I had to be at the funeral. Uh, you know, that there, there are, there are the, the kinds of cover-up, the, the standard for cover-up in, in this particular instance, there were thousands and thousands of man hours uh, and virtually all men, I think it's safe to conclude, that was involved in constructing this cover-up. I mean, that the, the FBI agents, at all they were all given the assignment to go to work uh, conclusively establishing that Lee Harvey Oswald did this all by himself as a deranged lone gunman. And there, you know, half of them were lawyers. And one of the major problems with the legal profession, and you'll discover at law school that there are more, uh, that is that, you know, they believe that when they have a particular client, that their job is to, to effectuate whatever the objectives of that client are. And so what they do is they conceal information, which is exculpatory, uh, and they marshal the evidence that is facially incriminating. And they do things like this. They say, well, that, uh, you know, the, the shell casings that were found at the Tempestine were a combination of Remington and Winchester uh, expended shell casings. And the, uh, the bullets found in Lee Harvey Oswald's gun were, in fact, a combination of uh, Remington and uh, and Winchester uh, shells. And the slugs that were taken from J.D. Tippett's body were a combination of Remington and Winchester. And that what you have to do as the lawyer on the other side is you have to say exactly what combination was that. You know, and if you don't know enough to ask that question, their judgment is that that's your fault that they aren't really lying, that you just didn't catch them, you know? And there's a big famous, you've all possibly heard about the Sacco and Vanzetti case. The Sacco Vanzetti case was a big famous case back in the 1920s when there was this huge, quote, red scare going on right after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, in Attorney General Palmer, I had this this big red squads that were going out arresting all kinds of different people. And uh, there were these two guys, Sacco and Vanzetti, that were considered to be syndicalists, they called them, uh, kind of socialist uh, people that engaged in meetings with each other. And uh, and the uh, a uh, a, a, bay, a armored vehicle of some sort was uh, robbed, a payroll uh, was robbed in, in uh, Braintree, Massachusetts. And the, the people that were guarding the thing were killed. Uh, and they were killed with a 38 pistol. 
And they found that when they went and raided this house of Sacco and Vanzetti, they found one of them that had a 38 pistol. So they arrested them and charged them with the Braintree bank robbery or the, the, the bank payroll robbery. And the, the evidence that they presented to the jury is that bullets fired from this gun were consistent with the bullets found in the body of the victims. And the defense attorney just sort of let that go on in and the jury convicted them. But it turns out that the bullets were not fired from the same gun at all. It's just that they were both 38s. Okay, and so that's what they meant when they said it was bullets consistent with bullets fired from this other pistol. And so you have to understand that uh, prosecutors uh, assume that it is their job to get the person convicted. Once they make the decision that they're going to prosecute someone, that's what they do. And the problem is that on the other side, the criminal defense attorneys, and I was in the office of the number one criminal defense firm in the entire world, and that was the office of F. Lee Bailey in Boston. The problem is they think their job is just to get their client off and to get paid as much as possible for doing that. Uh, and so they do they do the exact opposite. They get in and they conceal and, and confuse people, and all they're trying to do is get, get one person on the jury to refuse to convict them because they've got some reasonable doubt, uh, and then they can get their person off. And so the, it's a it's a terrible uh, problem in the uh, legal system. But when you don't have a trial, and you don't have lawyers on the other side that are actually challenging these types of unilateral presentations that are being made, and that's what happened here in the Kennedy assassination is that there was an instantaneous resolution uh, on the part of all of the law enforcement people that they were going to shave and, and crimp and, and mold the evidence to make it appear that Lee Harvey Oswald killed the president acting completely by himself. And uh, that was the, that, that's what you see. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that the culture has, has actually adjusted itself to this, whereby that if in fact the person is convicted, they just conduct themselves simply as though that person did it, period. And the, the fact is that most of the people, if the person is charged by the district attorney with doing it, they just conclude that it must be true. Because they'll say to themselves, why would the district attorney be charging somebody with this if they weren't the one that did it? We just these two days, this Tuesday and Thursday today, are the, the only time that we're going to be addressing directly uh, the assassination of President Kennedy. And so I just wanted to get it all done in, in a couple of days. And so, but I didn't want to have to bore you with that, uh, watching the video. Uh, so I, I do want to direct your attention to three specific books uh, if you want to get more detailed information about this. Uh, one of them is Jim Douglas's book. There's a couple readings that are, are in, the, in the reading list of, uh, from him. Jim Douglas's uh, book called JFK and the Unspeakable, uh, which gives you lots of details. Uh, David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard, uh, is, a, is an excellent book. And Peter Dale Scott's book called Deep Politics, and the death of JFK. Okay, uh, 
and and what we're what we'll do is I will uh, I will uh, for just this week uh, we'll put up the the last two lectures in the JFK alternative theories of the assassination course uh, so that you can see them if you'd like but we're not going to post those uh, on the, uh, the the general YouTube uh, place where you can see the course each each lecture in the course that we've we've had uh, in case any of you are using that to kind of review any of your your notes or anything um, so so that uh, that so what we want to do is I want to finish today going over the some of the details of the actual assassination itself because next week in week nine I want to uh, discuss the aftermath of the assassination that points more and more toward the general explanation of the assassination that you get in the three books that I just referenced and that we've been uh, when uh, explicating here in the course and we're going to be discussing things next week which have to do with the Watergate burglary the return of the impeachment resolution by the House Judiciary Committee against Richard Nixon flowing out of the Watergate burglary uh, what the connection between the Watergate burglary was and the Kennedy assassination, uh, and the uh, in, the installation of the Church Committee, the uh, the House Select Committee or the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse, chaired by Senator Frank Church, uh, and the uh, followed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations uh, and the Iran Contra Select Committee, all of which had these major select committees appointed in Congress because of this kind of sequence of scandals uh, that uh, besieged the United States during that period of time, which all arose out of this issue that we're talking about in this course, and that there was this very aggressive effort uh, on the part of the national security state bureaucracy and this cabal that I've been talking about to suppress any type of full-scale revelation about what it is that was going on behind the scenes in all of those scandals, because it's all basically the same thing. Uh, and uh, then in week 10, what I want to do is I want to return to the historical origins uh, of this cabal to try to make clear that it wasn't just this narrow period of time that we've been talking about uh, that went from just before World War One down to the end of World War Two in the assassination of President Kennedy, during which this cabal has been functioning. Uh, so that you won't, uh, I don't, I don't want you to leave this course being depressed about the fact that there, there, there's some sort of cabal that is in charge of the United States now during your lifetime that hasn't been going on the whole time. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's more depressing. Uh, or, or less depressing, but uh, I want to then be able to address what it is I think we can do about it. So, what what I want to do, what I want to do today is I want to uh, point out kind of a dozen or so key facts uh, that uh, makes it clear that the Warren Commission findings about the Kennedy assassination are totally unreliable. Uh, and then secondly, I want to point out a half dozen key facts that I believe uh, point directly toward 
the larger explanation of the assassination that we're talking about in this class. Uh, and then I want to uh, discuss uh, this entire issue of the Kennedy assassination uh, in the context of the general themes that we're addressing in the course, that being that there is this element, this elite element uh, behind the scenes in the United States that basically dictates the foreign policy and the domestic policy of the United States. Uh, okay, so the first, the first point that I want to make on this, rather than t taking you through the entire two hours of those last uh, lectures in, in kind of potentially smothering some of the key points uh, in this kind of detailed chronology, uh, though, as I said, it'll be available for you so you can have the whole, the whole organic chronology of what was going on. Uh, but I want to point out, number one, when I, when I reflect back upon everything that I know about this and have come to know over the years, one of the very first things that leaps to mind is that uh, that is this. Do we, do we have the this little machine right here? We just see this. Set it right here. I guess it's not very not very clear, but the bottom line is there's no way that this man right here. And this other man right here, this is William Rip Robertson. And this is Grayson Lynch, his sidekick. And you can see the front the front of the Kennedy limousine just coming uh, into view here. And these two men are standing directly next to the famous Stennis uh, Freeway sign, uh, behind which the limousine went to block out for a moment uh, the first shot that hit the president from the Zapruder film that you, the famous scene where when the president comes out from behind the Stennis freeway sign where he's holding his throat like this, that you may have seen a hundred times. This is the, this is 1.2 seconds before that. And this is William Rip Robertson tipping his hat to the president coming by. And there's no possible way that William Rip Robertson could be just standing in Dealey Plaza at 12.30 p.m. on the 22nd of November uh, and not have been directly involved in whatever assassination might take place uh, there at that time and place, because that was his job. He was, in fact, the field commander of the S-Force that we've talked about that was put together back in 1960 at the request of Richard Nixon to assassinate Fidel Castro and Raul Castro, Che Guevara, and the other five commandantes of the uh, of the new revolutionary government in Cuba. So there's no way uh, that Rip Robertson would just coincidentally happen to be there uh, at that particular place and a full 10 mile long uh, parade route uh, coming from Love Field uh, going to the location where the president was supposed to be delivering his noontime uh, luncheon speech uh, to to have to have this particular guy who is the same guy who was standing immediately next to uh, William D. Pauley on the night of June 19th of 1963, just five months earlier, on the deck of the Flying Tiger. Uh, when William Pauley, standing immediately next to him, told John Martino 
that not to worry that they were going to kill the president, were going to kill President Kennedy, referring to him as the uh, the MF uh, at that time. Uh, so so uh, so the the reason why uh, it just couldn't be coincidental is because of the direct testimony that uh, that I have now of uh, of Dick Billings having stood there and heard him say it. And I've now recently gotten him tape recorded, uh, confirming the fact that this was said immediately in his presence and how terrible he feels uh, about that having happened. And he did not do whatever it was that was necessary to keep that event from happening. Uh, and uh, so so this, this is the, number, the first number one piece of evidence here as to why this could not have happened without Rip Robertson uh, having been directly involved in the assassination. Uh, secondly, there's no way uh, that, uh, that this particular individual here so there's no way that that, that, that particular individual uh, who is Edward Lansdale uh, could possibly have been in Dealey Plaza. Uh, at the same time that William Rip Robertson was there, uh, this is approximately five minutes after the shooting itself. Uh, and there are these three hobos uh, that have been taken out of a boxcar uh, immediately behind the grassy knoll. Uh, and they've been taken out of the boxcar and they're being paraded uh, from the boxcar to the Dallas police station right here by, you see the, the, police, the policeman here. Uh, and the fact that this particular policeman here, as you see in the front, is shown to have in his ear, in his right ear, an electronic uh, telephone communication system that none of the Dallas police had. Uh, and uh, and this, this is a, a close-up picture, an expanded picture of, of Lansdale right here. Uh, and and this is, these, are, these are the photographs that his wife positively identified as being Lansdale. Uh, and L. Uh, 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 Proudy, Fletcher Prouty, uh, who worked with him in the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, identified him. Uh, and they all said, if you could only blow these pictures up enough to see whether or not he has on his left hand this major ring that he used to wear all the time, right here. Uh, and that, and that he has he has a a very a very well known uh, what they call drooping right shoulder from an injury that he had he had suffered, and you see that right here, you see the the well you can't see it as clear but his right shoulder uh, sags off to one side. You can see it a little better here. This is this is he right here. You can only see that his his right shoulder. It always hangs down lower 
than his than his left than his left shoulder, and uh, his his wife talked about that, and and Fletcher Prouty talked about that, and the others who identified him in that picture, and and uh, they they positively identified him in the picture before they knew exactly where it came from, uh, but uh, but th- there's there's no way there's no way that uh, that Edward Lansdale could have been just coincidentally uh, it at Daly, Daly Plaza, the same place where Rip Robertson was at 12.35 p.m. on November 22nd of 1963 without him having been involved in what it was that was happening there. And you remember that Lansdale uh, was, was the fellow who actually found the $1.2 trillion in gold and platinum and, and silver and in, in, in jewels that was brought to a talk with uh, Douglas MacArthur uh, back in 1945, and they set up the Anderson Trust. Uh, and he was a, a major uh, person involved in the Anderson Trust, and he was in charge of the covert operations against the Cuban government uh, in the CIA. And so that in, in the, uh, and thirdly, there's no way that Santos Traficante, who is the man who had set up that S-Force of the 15 anti-Castro Miami-based uh, Cuban exiles, uh, there's no way that Santos Traficante would have told uh, our office through uh, Andy Tooney, who's our chief investigator, there's no way that Santos Traficani would have told us, uh, F. Lee Bailey's office, as as Santos Traficani's attorneys, there's no way that he would have confidentially told us that it was in fact the S-Force that had assassinated President Kennedy, that uh, he told us this in May of 1973 before anyone had made such an accusation. And he told us this confidentially in the context of trying to explain why three of his former gunmen uh, from Havana uh, were in the Watergate Hotel, uh, in, in, in burglarizing the Watergate Hotel, uh, because F. Lee Bailey had been retained to represent James McCord the former CIA wiretapping specialist who had been uh, arrested uh, with uh, uh, with Martinez and Gonzalez and Bernard Barker, the three uh, anti-Castro-Cuban uh, exiles who were all Traficante gunmen from Havana before 1959. And so that when Bailey made the inquiry of Traficante why these guys were in the Watergate Hotel, he told us in May of 1973 that this was because the S Force had been the ones who assassinated President Kennedy, and that they were that uh, Nixon, when he was uh, running for the re-election in 1972, had become terrified. Was Traficanti's word? Had become terrified when he discovered that uh, that uh, uh, Larry O'Brien had been made the new head of the Democratic National Committee 
uh, and was going to be there for supervising the 1972 election against Richard Nixon. And, Ken, and Nixon knew immediately that O'Brien had been for some 20 years prior to becoming the new head of the Democratic National Committee, the Washington lobbyist for Howard Hughes. And as you'll recall, I explained that, uh, that Nixon had contacted Howard Hughes to get Hughes to set up the assassination team to kill Fidel Castro and Raul Castro and Che Guevara and the others. So there's no way that Santos Traficante would have told us that, you know, being the first one to take any initiative whatsoever to communicate and reveal the fact that he knew that these were the people that had killed the president. Uh, so that, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, the, and the fact is, is that that, later on enabled me to realize when we got this photograph of Rip Robertson. And I was told by Dick Billings that Billings had been there when Rip Robertson was, was coordinating the team that went in to, uh, to Cuba back in June of 1963 to attempt to assassinate Fidel Castro. That made it clear that that was an assassination operation. Rip Robertson was there. Uh, at the time, commanding that unit, and in Polly, uh, Polly made that uh, this statement that they were going to kill the president. So there's no way that Traficanti would have revealed all of that to us uh, in May of 1973 if, in fact, it hadn't been true. So it, it was a complete admission against his own personal criminal interests involved potentially in one of the most heinous crimes of the entire century. There was absolutely no reason why he would have said that to us. Okay, number four is there's no possible way that Lee Harvey Oswald would have just happened to have been in the Texas School Book Depository, you know, uh, the immediately overlooking the very spot where President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd of 1963, unless that had been arranged pursuant to some type of a plan, uh, you know, given his particular background. Uh, and in that particular background, it makes it absolutely clear that he is not and had never been a pro-Castro leftist as he was portrayed to be. And you, you go over the details that were concealed about, uh, about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and it becomes, becomes obvious that, uh, that nobody of his particular background would have simply coincidentally happened to be there, uh, in effect, in Daly Plaza at the, at the time the president came by, because we know that he had been, number one, a very low-level intelligence operative when he was in the United States Marine Corps uh, back between September of 1957 and November of 1958 when he was based at Atsugi uh, Air Base in Japan where he in fact had become, as I mentioned to you before, this low-level intelligence gathering operative uh, against this place called the Queen Bee which was a bar near the, the base uh, where the women who worked at the bar were uh, soliciting information from the personnel at the U-2 base 
trying to get information about what was going on at the base. And uh, Oswald, as I mentioned to you, reported this to his immediate superior, and he was immediately put in touch with this private civilian uh, from an intelligence organization that basically began to give him money to bring to the queen bee, to spread the money around, to engage contact with these women so he could in fact give them false intelligence information, which could then be traced through the intelligence system to find out where it was going. Uh, so that we know that that's where he started in that operation. And we know that he was recruited from that operation to be part of a thing called the Illusionary Warfare Project which was based at Nags Head in, in South Carolina. Uh, and we, we know this because of two reasons. One is Richard Nagel, who was the man who was giving him the money, uh, said so uh, later and, and reported it. And he had also been uh, seen there in the Illusionary Warfare training base at Nags Head by a fellow by the name of Tosh Plumley, uh, who was a CIA trained pilot uh and uh and that uh we i i knew victor marchetti victor marchetti was a a long time cia uh operations specialist and uh, intelligence officer and he explained in some detail to me what the illusionary warfare project was uh and it was this whole operation where they were uh, were creating what they called dangles, intelligence dangles, where they would would have young, uh, usually low-level military people who might have access to some intelligence information. They would try to they would train them to give people the public impression that they were sympathetic to leftist causes, hoping that they would be contacted and recruited by Soviet uh, agents, and then they could infiltrate them. Uh, and that, uh, so that, uh, and, and we, we know that, uh, that it's just not going to happen that somebody like, like, uh, Oswald is just going to write a letter to the Marine Corps saying, I'd like to be let out of the Marine Corps, uh, because my mother had a can of peas fall on her nose and uh, she needs to have me home. Uh, you know, that isn't how it happens. Uh, and yet he just wrote that one simple letter to the Marine Corps command and was immediately released from the Marine Corps to go home to, quote, take care of his mother. And he was only home for three days before he was on a plane on the way to Russia. OK, and that we also know that it doesn't happen that you go into Russia, you go into the embassy in, in Moscow and you renounce your American citizenship. Uh, and 18 months later, you get tired of it and decide you want to come back home. Uh, and they immediately say, well, that's okay. Uh, you can go right back home uh, and we'll give you the money to fly uh, or to take the boat. Uh, and that's what he did. Okay. And also, it just, it just doesn't happen. And in fact, it didn't happen uh, that he would just coincidentally be met when he arrives at Hoboken, New Jersey at the port of entry by a fellow by the name of Spaz Rakin, uh, who in fact was the uh, the uh, secretary of a an aggressively uh, anti-communist, extreme right-wing, pro-Nazi uh, organization uh, that uh, that was directly related to the uh, anti-Bolshevik bloc 
of nations, uh, who was the, the director, the director of whom uh, was uh, Yaroslav Stetsko. And Yaroslav Stetsko, the boss of this guy, Spaz Rakin, was the, was the head of the largest and most important umbrella uh, organization of forming former Nazi collaborators in the entire world. And this guy was his was his assistant, uh, and this guy Stetsko was an official reporter, full time reporter to the Foreign Intelligence Digest. Okay, and the Foreign Intelligence Digest was set up by Charles Willoughby, that I told you about. That was the G two to MacArthur, uh, and and it was done in Dallas in 1951. And that H.L. Hunt was one of the co-funders of this, as was William D. Pauley. Okay, and that the uh, and it turns out through some investigations I did, when you're looking for the Foreign Intelligence Digest, uh, former uh, issues of the Foreign Intelligence Digest, it turns out that they're kept in at the University of Arkansas. Uh, in box number 94 of the documents of Reverend Billy James Hargis, who was the extreme right-wing fascist uh, uh, minister uh, in Dallas, uh, who was very close to Edwin uh, Walker, uh, General Edwin Walker, uh, the right-wing fascist military guy who was dismissed from the United States Army by President Kennedy because of his refusal to stop distributing uh, uh, John Birch Society materials to all of the people under his command. And it turns out that the John, John Birch of the John Birch Society, that John Birch was an intelligence officer who was assigned by General James Doolittle to be an intelligence officer for the Flying Tigers, which was founded by William Pauley who was the same guy who was the co-founder and co-funder of the Foreign Intelligence Digest with, Joe, with Charles Willoughby and H.L. Hunt. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't just happen in the world, okay? Uh, and, uh, and it turns out that uh, this uh, Spaz Rakin, when he put, uh, put uh, Oswald and Marina on the airplane and flew them into Dallas, he was handed off directly to uh, George DeMornshield. George DeMornshield is another right-wing uh, fascist sympathizer who was part of the white Russian community in Dallas that come from Western Russia that were sympathetic to the German, uh, the Nazis uh, when they invaded Russia and they're pro-Tsarist royalists. And, uh, and he's the one that took charge of him and shepherded uh, Oswald all around Dallas this is not something that is done for a person who is a, a devout leftist, as they were insisting that Oswald was. That, uh, and, uh, uh, and we also have done further investigation and know that, that Oswald was uh, intimately involved with Guy Bannister uh, in New Orleans and David Ferry. And Guy Bannister was the head of the uh, the anti-communist, the World Anti-Communist League in, in the Southern United States, in Latin America. And the World Anti-Communist League is a fascist organization. 
there's a, there's a book that you might want to read, uh, depending on what you're going to be doing your your thesis on here, and that that is a book called Inside the League, uh, and it was uh, it was written by uh, so the two brothers that were uh, brothers of uh, not Drew Pearson but uh, one of the other major you'll you'll find it's called Inside the League, and it goes into detail about this being a fascist organization around the world, not just a conservative group or not just an anti-communist group, but an affirmatively fascist organization. Uh, and that uh, in Guy Bannister, whom, whom uh, Oswald worked directly with, uh, was, was the head of this thing. And in fact, Oswald was identified by the secretary of Guy Bannister is having been directly involved in helping to offload a, 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 a bunch of weapons uh, that were actually stolen uh, from a particular arsenal uh, in, uh, in New Orleans uh, and that they were bringing those weapons to the base at Lake Pontchartrain, which was the anti-Castro a Cuban exile, one of the five paramilitary bases in southeastern United States, uh, where the S Force people were uh, divided among those, and uh, and so that uh, so and and there is a, this really interesting letter that uh, prior to this time no one had been able to quite figure out what the heck it meant. There was a letter that was written by uh, by Lee Harvey Oswald to H L Hunt asking Hunt to please clarify for uh, Oswald what Oswald's employment relationship was with H.L. Hunt. And, and that had never made any sense to anybody, what that thing was all about. But it makes perfect sense when you understand that Lee Harvey Oswald was in fact working for the Foreign Intelligence Digest and that all of the kind of things that he was doing of uh, going to ACLU meetings uh, and, and going to the meetings of the uh, Fair Play for, or organizing the Fair Play for Cuba organization, that these were all activities that he was engaged in as an operative for the Foreign Intelligence Digest of attempting to gather information against people that, that were viewed by the ultra right wing as subversives. Okay, so that, uh, uh, and, and there's, and plus, there's, there's absolutely no reason why Richard Billings, who was the Miami bureau chief for Life magazine, would make up a story telling me that he was present when William D. Pauley uh, told John Martino, right standing next to Rip Robertson, that in fact they were going to kill the president. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why he would have ever told anybody that because it's humiliating to him that he actually was there and heard them say that, and then later realized as soon as the president was killed that these are the people that probably killed him and that he still hadn't done anything about it. And so he ends up telling me about this uh, only years later, uh, and there's no, there's no rational reason why he would do that uh, because it's contrary to his interests because it was terribly embarrassing for him. And there's no way that Lee Harvey Oswald, no, no way that Lee Harvey Oswald was going to be able to fire. And this is a, a very simple fact. There's no possible way 
that Lee Harvey Oswald from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository fired three shots with a bolt action Manlicker Carcano rifle in 6.5 seconds and had three hits on uh, uh, one in the back of President Kennedy, one of them that hit uh, a second one and clearly a second shot that hit John Connolly and a third shot that was the kill shot that killed President Kennedy. There's no possible way that the, the only way that anybody came close to replicating firing three shots from a Manlicker Carcano rifle was, I told you, by bolting it down and, and cranking off three shots that they fired as fast as they possibly could, which still didn't make it in 6.5 seconds, and they weren't able to aim the rifle at all in order to get those, those shots off. So there's no way that that, that happened. Uh, and, 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 and ancillarily to that point is there's absolutely no way to to support the proposition that that governor Connolly was shot by the same bullet that hit president kennedy because there are in fact three separate uh frames of the zapruder film and i happen to know that because uh richard billings is one of the very few people in the world that ever had direct access to the zapruder film the original film because there, he, he and his team are the ones that got the film. Uh, and they're the ones that got access to the developed frames. And he's the one that took the frames, the blow up frames, the big like six, six by eight uh, frames of the Zapruder film and showed them to, to Governor Connolly. Uh, and Governor Connolly looked at them and said, see, look, I told you, I was not hit by the same bullet. Because as I told you the other day, look, here I am holding my Stetson, and there's the there's President Kennedy in the back seat grabbing his throat, having already been shot through the throat. And uh, I'm now turning around looking into the trying to look into the back seat, and I'm still holding my white Stetson in my right hand. And I turned all the way back to halfway to my left before I was hit. So it's perfectly clear that that was not the same bullet. He said, and he said, I know positively that it wasn't the same bullet. And so that that means that there had to have been three separate shots. The one that hit the president in the back, there's actually a four shot that hit him in the throat. Uh, but then the, the shot that, that hit Connolly and then the kill shot that killed the president. And so there's no possible way that that could have been fired from just one single man liquor bolt action uh, uh, rifle. Uh, that nobody could do that. Uh, okay, and now a very important fact, one that you uh, have probably almost certainly never heard about at all, is that there is that it didn't just happen that Lee Harvey Oswald, on the night that he, the, the night after he'd been arrested, he was arrested on the afternoon of November 22nd, on the evening of uh, November 23rd uh, at 11 p.m., he, he, asked to have a, a telephone call made uh, for him from the jail, from the Dallas uh, jail. Does this make it work? Yeah, I think it does. Okay, you see this? This is a collect call request from the, from the jail uh, of the, the Dallas Police Department 
requested by uh, prisoner Lee Harvey Oswald, asking the operator to place a call to Raleigh, North, Raleigh, North Carolina, to a John Hurt, who is at uh, area code 919-833-1253. Uh, and it turns out he's asked, asked her to place the call for him. She reported it to the Secret Service the Secret Service then uh, said they wanted to monitor any such call if it were made. And the the woman, uh, uh, L. Sweeney, her name is, who signed this particular uh, verification that the call had been had been asked for, that she in fact rumpled up the uh, the the request for the message and threw it into the wastebasket. And uh, her assistant, her assistant. Uh, a, uh, let me see, here's her name. Her, her assistant, um, let me find here what her, what her name is, just so you'll have it. Uh, I guess I didn't write it down here, but anyway, her, her assistant was sitting here and she was shocked that this lady, this lady Sweeney had not placed the phone call that had been requested. And so when Sweeney went off to do a coffee break, this woman took the note out of the trash basket and kept it just as a souvenir. Okay. And so that this is, this is, and the fact is that John Hurt at that number right there turns out to have been a military intelligence officer. Uh, and uh, in the, uh, upon further investigation, it turns out that he was an intelligence officer based at Nags Head. Uh, North Carolina, right where the illusionary warfare uh, training base was, uh, and uh, so that so that this is uh, this things like this don't just happen. It isn't just coincidental that that uh, Oswald tried to make this call because he was trying to make a call to someone who was uh, going to be his intelligence contact so that he could get out of the problem that he was in. And number nine, there is no way that Jack Ruby, who was the Dallas bag man for Sam Giancana, uh, who was instrumental in setting up the S-Force, this Capricani has confirmed to us were the ones that actually shot the president and killed him. There's no way that uh, the Sam Giancana bag man in Dallas just gets upset over the fact that he felt bad for Jackie Kennedy and just happened to go inside the Dallas Police Department and gun down the the alleged assassin of President Kennedy right in front of everybody. You know that he just got a he just got a bad feeling. Uh, for poor Mrs. Kennedy and decided he was going to go in and kill him. And he just happened to be the bag man for Sam Giancana. Okay. And moreover, number 10, there's no way that, that the kind of steps could have been taken that were verified to have been taken, attempting to fake certain evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald, unless there was some kind of a sophisticated plan underway to try to frame him up as being the one that killed the president. Uh, and there are a number of these things. For example, the, the, a, a, fellow, a fellow by the name of, uh, of uh, 
what's his name? He's got this really strange name. Uh, his his name is Leighton Martens, L-A-Y-T-O-N, Martens, M-A-R-T-E-N, Leighton Martens, uh, a fellow that looks very much like Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, actually appeared at a number of uh, rifle ranges uh, in the Dallas, Texas area, signing in under the name of Lee Harvey Oswald and actually doing things like being very rowdy and walking in front of people who were trying to fire downrange and interfering with them uh, and actually shooting at other people's targets uh, and then introducing himself to them as Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, you know, and, uh, and th there's a very peculiar thing about this because one of my investigators, uh, William Johnstone Taylor, a United States Marine Corps CID, criminal investigations uh, officer, uh, you know, take that back, he wasn't an officer, he'd be insulted. Uh, he was, he was just a, a sergeant in the Marine Corps. He was actually assigned shortly after the assassination to uh, move in next door to Leighton Martin's brother and to befriend him and try to get introduced to Leighton Martin's. Now, this came from the Marine Corps command structure instructing him as a criminal in investigator uh, to, to befriend Leighton Martin's uh, brother to get to meet Leighton Martin's to do surveillance on Leighton Martens. He could never understand why that was done uh, until we discovered that uh, Leighton Martens was one of the guys who was involved with Lee Harvey Oswald in unloading these stolen weapons in New Orleans that were being stored in Guy Bannister's office and then being brought to Lake Pontchartrain. And so that, uh, so this, this fellow uh, Leighton Martens is also the guy who was roommates with David Ferry in in New Orleans, uh, and and uh, and David Ferry was the uh, Civil Air Patrol uh, boss of Lee Harvey Oswald uh, in the Civil Air Patrol, and yet Leighton Martens is going around pretending he's Lee Harvey Oswald, firing a Manlicker Carcano rifle at these rifle ranges, this old, weird, uh, foreign uh, bolt-action military weapon uh, that was actually called the, the humanitarian weapon uh, because it couldn't kill anybody. It was so inaccurate. Uh, and uh, it was issued by the Italian military. Uh, and... and uh, and also, there was a completely fake uh, uh, report of Lee Harvey Oswald having gone to the Russian embassy in Mexico City and uh, trying to get a, uh, a, a visa to go to Cuba. And in fact, the Mexico CIA station was insisting that this was true, that it had been done shortly before the assassination. And it turns out that on further investigation, when in fact, uh, the uh, the video footage, the camera footage for the U.S. Embassy uh, actually got a, a photograph of the person who had come in to apply as Lee Harvey Oswald for the visa. It was absolutely clear that it was not Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, it isn't even close. He was short and squat and bald-headed, 
uh, and big muscular dude, uh, and it was not Oswald at all. And everybody, once the photograph was shown to them, acknowledged that it wasn't he. And yet the Mexico station of the CIA was insisting that Lee Harvey Oswald had gone in and applied for a, a visa to go to Cuba. Uh, and then there was a fake telephone call uh, that was placed uh, allegedly by Lee Harvey Oswald to the Mexican uh, embassy uh, or an embassy in, in Mexico again. And they, they ended up doing a voice print on it. And uh, the person said they were Lee Harvey Oswald and they were inquiring about how to get a visa to go to Cuba and a voice print test was done on it. And it was positively proved that it was false and it wasn't hey. And so, so what is happening here? You know, why is it that people are, uh, this Leighton Martens is showing up at these uh, rifle ranges pretending to be Lee Harvey Oswald firing a man liquor Carcano rifle? And why is it that people are falsely pretending that they're Lee Harvey Oswald going to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City to try to get a a visa to Cuba? And uh, and, uh, there's... Oh, in, in addition to that, um, the, these are just some of the, uh, the the big ones. Is there's no way in the world that Richard Nagel, a member of the Field Operations Intelligence that was created by Charles Willoughby immediately after they created the Foreign Intelligence Digest out of out of Dallas, they organized a separate organization called the Field Operations Intelligence, of which Nagel was a part. There was no way that he, in September of 1963, this is two months before the assassination at the end of November, that he appears in a bank in El Paso uh, and fires two shots into the ceiling of the bank and then sits in his car waiting for the police to come and arrest him and then tells them that they should look in the trunk of his car so that they can find these false IDs, uh, photograph IDs of Lee Harvey Oswald under the name of A. Hadell. Uh, and in fact, find a fake, a fake IDs uh, with uh, Nagel's photograph on them uh, in the name of Lee Harvey Oswald and fake ID of, of Nagel, photo ID in the name of A. Hedel, right? And this is, this is two months prior to the assassination. And when he's taken into custody by the police, he says to them, which is official record of the, the El Paso Police Department, saying, I'd rather be here, arrested here and in jail than in Dallas in November. Okay? Uh, and uh, so, so what I'm saying, there's just no way that that can happen with if if there isn't some major, sophisticated plan underway uh, to to attempt to direct evidence toward Lee Harvey Oswald as allegedly being the purchaser of the Carcano rifle that had been purchased through the mail by an A. Hadell. Uh, and there's also no reason for George de Morenshield, who had been, as I mentioned to you, the white Russian fascist guy who was basically shepherding Oswald all around in, in Dallas. There was no reason for him 
when he was approached, his, his daughter's house where he was visiting was approached by Gaten Fonzi, uh, the, one of the investigators for the House uh, Select Committee on Assassinations. There was no reason why George DeMorne Shield should have gone out into the garage and put a shotgun in his mouth and blown his brains out uh, to avoid being questioned by the people from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, if in fact his relationship with Oswald was completely innocent. Uh, and there also would be no way that George DeMorne Shield would have just innocently taken Lee Harvey Oswald to Collins Radio uh, to try to get him a job at the Collins Radio uh, Corporation, which in fact was the lessee of the Rex. In the first week of November, that was attempting to put uh, anti-Castro Cuban exiles ashore in Cuba. Uh, in that the Rex is the same ship, CIA ship, that the proof of the CIA paid the dock fees for the USS Rex, okay? And that was seen by Richard Billings refueling the, the uh, uh, Flying Tiger on the night of June 19th of 1963, five months earlier, uh, off Cuba, okay? So there's there's no reason why any of these things would have happened, nor would there have been any reason for George DeMornshield to write a letter to George H.W. Bush imploring Bush to intervene to keep DeMornshield from being interrogated by the members of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, if in fact his relationship had been innocent. And there's no way that Lyndon Baines Johnson just happened to appoint Alan Dulles to be on the Warren Commission to investigate the killing of the president in light of the fact that Dulles had been fired by John Kennedy uh, in the fall of 1961, following the Cuban uh, the, the debacle at the Bay of Pigs, there's no reason that he would have appointed him to be an objective investigator of the death of him. Uh, nor <coughs> is can I get a glass of water? I forgot the Brini water here. That, <coughs> that there's there's no way that Lyndon Johnson would have just coincidentally uh, attempted to persuade Earl Warren to become the head of the, war, the, the, the commission that became known as the Warren Commission, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, uh, telling him that I absolutely need to have you be the head of this commission because it's essential that someone be there that can conceal the fact that there was a, an assassination team that had been organized to assassinate Fidel Castro uh, and that it was created by Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy, which is completely false because we know the details of it having been created by Richard Nixon back in June and July of 1960. There's no way that Lyndon Johnson uh, could have even known about such an assassination team. Okay, and to, to specifically ask Earl Warren to take over as the head of that commission and specifically conceal the existence of this assassination team under the fabrication that it would have been discovered that it was Kennedy's, the Kennedy brothers that created it 
And if it were discovered that such an assassination team had been fielded by the Kennedys to kill Fidel Castro, that people would assume that Fidel Castro had found out about this and that therefore he had, had assassinated President Kennedy first, and therefore the United States would have to militarily invade the island of Cuba, and Russia would go to war with us in a World War III. Now, there's, I mean, there's no way that Lyndon Johnson just makes up a story like that, okay? Uh, unless there is some much more sophisticated plan afoot. And uh, and uh, what it what it appears to me to be is that clearly Lee Harvey Oswald was a part of this group. He was a part of that community of those right wing uh, fascist elements that included H. L. Hunt and George uh, uh, and George Demorenshield and uh, uh, William Pauley and H.L. Hunt and, uh, and uh, 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 what's this, the Willoughby, that whole crowd uh, that were, were fascists, and Bill Harvey, uh, who had been the SIS, uh, the, the special intelligence uh, services for the FBI down in the Mexico City uh, station down there. And, and it turns out that, that, that there was a woman uh, in the Mexico in Mexico City, that the Mexico City uh, CIA station tried to coerce into saying that she had met Lee Harvey Oswald. Thank you. When he was down in Mexico City trying to get a uh, a visa to go to Cuba, and in fact she was tortured to try to get her to to say that, uh, and she was tortured by Nasser Haro. The head of the DFS, whom I told you uh, was the man who brought Joseph Burkholder Smith down to uh, Argentina and brought him to the little town of Salta and brought him into the meeting where the Nazis were sitting at the table under a swastika flag, you know, uh, and it, so that and that's Nasser Haro. And Nasser Haro is the guy that tortured this woman to try to get her to falsely testify that Oswald had been in Mexico City and was her lover and was trying to get a, a visa to go to Cuba, uh, all of which is factly false. Okay? Uh, so that, that what it appears is that, well, Lee Harvey Oswald was involved with all of those people, uh, that in fact, he was being set up. He was being set up to take the fall uh, for this. But in, I've gotten in trouble with a, a number of the researchers uh, in this area when, when I say that I, I, I think that there's reason to believe that Lee Harvey Oswald uh, realized that there was going to be some kind of a, uh, a false uh, attack against Kennedy, that there was going to be a false assassination attempt against him, and that they were going to try to blame it on Fidel Castro in Cuba, and that he was sympathetic to such a, uh, an endeavor, and that these kind of endeavors go on all the time uh, in that particular uh, milieu of those people, uh, and that, that, uh, that he was may well have been knowledgeable that there was going to be a staged uh, uh, assassination 
uh, a mock assassination attack against him that could be used to instigate a, an attack against the island of Cuba, and that he found himself uh, in the midst of it. And when, much to his surprise, that uh, the, the Kennedy was actually assassinated by this very group that he was part of, and that he discovered that he was being set up for this, and that he fled the scene, and he went back to his house, and he got his 38 revolver, and he went to go meet someone, uh, and that uh, and he went to the school, the, the or excuse me, to the uh, the Texas uh, theater where I've been, uh, and he went into the theater and he sat down in a particular seat, which is three rows from the back, as I recall, and three chairs in, which is a classic covert intelligence uh, code of you, you go to the theater, you tell them they're gonna meet them there and you go three seats from the back and three seats in from the aisle. And that's where you're gonna be sitting in case the people don't know what you look like. And then he went to the theater and when he ends up getting busted, he realized that he had been set up. And that's why he attempted to make the telephone call to John Hurt to try to get through to the people that he had been involved with in the illusionary warfare group to vouch for him. Okay. And so that this is what it appears to be. And uh, now there's, there's no way. Uh, and th now this is, now let's shift to the, to a, a handful of facts that all point toward uh, who it was that really did this. That, uh, that number one, uh, assuming, as I do, that Traficanti was telling us the truth, that he had certainly no good reason to make up, uh, that the S-Force that no one even knew about, which he admitted to us he helped put together, were the ones that actually assassinated the president. In Dilly, in Dilly Plaza, that there's no way that the S Force would have taken it upon themselves to kill the president and think they could possibly have gotten away with it. There were just too many people that knew who they were, you know, uh, and they, they would have to have been authorized by at least their liaison officers from the CIA, which would have been E. Howard Hunt for the group that was in the Everglades, and Frank Sturgis that was in charge of the group out at No Name Key. Both of whom, you, real, you remember, had sided with the Cuban exiles in defying President, uh, President Kennedy by launching attacks against the island of Cuba after they've been explicitly prohibited from doing so following the Cuban Missile Crisis. Frank Sturgis on December 3rd launched the attack and sank a ship that was a Russian ship that was in the harbor in Havana uh, in complete defiance of the president. And E. Howard Hunt was planning a second such operation in defiance of the president out of the Everglades, the base in the Everglades. So these two guys were sympathetic toward the the uh, Cuban uh, exile group. And they would have been the people that would have had to have approved what the S-Force did before they ever would have dared to do it. Uh, yet, uh, yet, 
it's uh, it's not not reasonable at all that E. Howard Hunt would have, if he had done that, if he had been involved in that operation, that he wouldn't have blown the whistle on them when he got arrested. Not 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 just because he got arrested at the Watergate Hotel, which we'll go into, uh, you know, on Tuesday, but his just having been arrested for being in the Watergate Hotel, he could. You know, if he was going to get, you know, a year uh, at some, you know, resort, federal resort, where he had to be under house arrest or something for a year for having done that, would not have motivated him to blow the whistle on them about this. But the fact is that he concluded that they murdered his wife, that his wife was the one who was going to be carrying the money to to hunt to pay all the lawyers for the people that were involved in the Watergate burglary. And she was on an airplane that uh, crashed and killed her. And E. Howard Hunt, and I, we know this from Traficante, that E. Howard Hunt became convinced that they had killed her, uh, as sending a message to him and the other burglars that they'd better be quiet. Uh, and yet, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up on, on this, is that you remember it was it was Hunt that was the one insisting after they were arrested at the water, in the Watergate Hotel, which we'll go into on Tuesday, is that he was the one that was insisting that Nixon authorize the payment of the lawyers that were going to be representing uh, all of the burglars, and uh, that was that famous comment that uh, uh, that uh, Nixon asked uh, Bob Haldeman. He said, "Well." How much do you think it would cost? And Haldeman said it would probably cost uh, more than a million dollars. And Richard Nixon says, oh, a million dollars. That, we could get that. We could get that. But then he remembered that he was being recorded. With his order, And he said, but of course that would be wrong, he said. But that was E. Howard Hunt that they were talking about. And one of the things that, that Nixon said in the, that conversation is uh, we'd better be careful of this guy because if he were to tear off that scab, there'd be an awful lot of pus or something that would come out from this. And that this is what they were talking about in, in, the, in the, and the tapes that ended up becoming the smoking gun tapes that got, that got Nixon uh, virtually impeached. They returned the articles of impeachment out of the House Judiciary Committee. It was clear that the full majority of the House of Representatives were going to vote for the articles of impeachment, and he would have been impeached. Uh, and he didn't want to undergo any kind of a trial about that, because underneath all of this was the fact that Nixon had ordered them to break into the, the Watergate Hotel to try to wiretap uh, Larry O'Brien to find out whether Larry O'Brien knew that it was Nixon that had put together the assassination team that killed the president. Uh, and so that that you're, you're going to be now made privy in this class to what it is that was underlying all of these huge scandals that took place uh, just before you guys were born. Uh, that there were there were a whole series of these scandals, and it turns out they all they all circulated around the same thing, and that was the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, 
and you'll you'll see how that happened uh, when we when we start discussing it on Tuesday. But there's also the the fact that uh, that there's no there's no way that E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis would have greenlighted this operation against the president unless they had been authorized to do it by their superiors. And their superiors would have included Bill Harvey in the Miami station, Theodore Shackley, who was the head of the Miami station, uh, and Alan Dulles, even though Alan Dulles was at that time no longer the director of the Central Intelligence Agency since uh, October of 1961. But the fact is there's evidence, direct proof, that Bill Harvey and the other people, including Shackley, that were in the Miami station uh, of the CIA were constantly going and seeing Alan Dulles, even though Dulles had been dismissed as being the director of the CIA. And they were coordinating what they were doing with Dulles, which is because Dulles had been made the head of the CIA because of his position as the consigliere of the people at Brown Brothers Harriman and, and at uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. And that that is why they were still going to him and taking directions from him. And that's why they would have had to have gotten Alan Dulles to sign off on this before they ever would have done that. And the fact is that there's no way that Alan Dulles would have, would have had to have undertaken this on his own because of the powerful relationship that he had to these particular group of men. Uh, that were the private investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman that were very close to George Herbert Walker and to Prescott Bush, that there was no way that Alan Dulles would have had to have gone all by himself to authorize the assassination of the president of the United States unless he could get the super secret okay from these guys. Uh, and remember, these are the people that he referred to, or let's be more specifically accurate. These are the people to whom James Jesus Angleton was referring when he told Joe Trento, the, uh, the uh, author of Prelude to Terror and a, a, a fellow uh, author for Counterpoint Press that publishes my books, uh, that uh, Joe Trento uh, said that when he talked to James Jesus Angleton, Angleton told him that, uh, that Dulles, Alan Dulles in 1953 had hired uh, James Jesus Angleton to be the head of counterintelligence uh, for the Central Intelligence Agency on the explicit condition that Angleton agree never to flutter, that means give a, a lie detector test to, uh, either Dulles himself or any of the 60 men that worked with him to help fund Germany at the end of World War One, up into World War II. Uh, and that was the specific demand that was made by Dulles to, to Angleton. Uh, and so this is the group of people that Dulles, it isn't that he answered to these people, but these were the people that were deep into the centers of power, uh, financial banking, uh, investment banking, uh, running the major corporations, the steel corporations, the petroleum industry, 
these these 60 men were were the people that Roosevelt was talking about earlier in some of those quotes or he or he said that you know if this if this uh, process of uh, corporate consolidation continues by the time we reach the end of this century the entire country will be run by less than 50 men who own and run the major corporations and that's that's what he said uh back in, in 1942 okay uh and this these are the people that uh that is not that not that Dulles answers to but that he works in conjunction with in making these major policy decisions so there was no reason why Dulles would have had to have gone out on the limb by himself to jeopardize himself by not having the support of these people because as you remember that what what they what they were saying because it was true is that that uh that Kennedy had not only uh, abandon any effort to overthrow the Cuban revolutionary government. But he had, in fact, agreed to open a back channel of communications to normalize relations with Fidel Castro. He had, in fact, reached out to Nikita Khrushchev. And by reason of these exchange of letters through Norman Cousins, these 18 separate private letters, that they were planning to disassemble the nuclear warheads of the United States arsenal uh, and those of the Soviet Union. And that these 60 men in Dulles and, and their compadres had spent a hundred years basically putting into place by, by, 1860, by 1963, between 1868 and, and, and 1963, they spent almost a hundred years, they and their grandparents, their grandfathers, had spent this time building the United States into the major hegemonic force on the planet. And that it was by dint of their control of a massively a superior amount of nuclear weapons that they had the, the, the power not only over the Soviet Union, but China, who they could not possibly confront in a traditional military engagement uh, on the field because the Chinese could put in the field uh, a million uh, a million men against them you know and so that uh, so that this this uh, Alan Dulles uh, would very much have wanted to uh, get the green light for what it is that he wanted to do and he was in the catbird seat of being able to tell these men that the the, the deepest darkest secret, was that they had found out that Kennedy was engaged in the exchange of these letters with Khrushchev and was actually planning to dis disassemble the nuclear arsenal of the United States. And, uh, and this is viewed as high treason by these people. And you remember, I told you that, that John Kennedy uh, asked uh, John Frankenheimer to produce and direct the movie Seven Days in May which actually sets forth the exact scenario of the, the, the chief of staff of the United States Air Force in the Joint Chiefs of Staff gathering and organizing a coup against the President of the United States because of the President of the United States wanting to enter into a, uh, a treaty with Russia to disassemble the nuclear weapons of both countries. And that's exactly what the movie was saying. 
in the in that uh, Kennedy himself. I know this from Pierre Salinger, as I mentioned, told me directly that that Kennedy had asked Pierre Salinger at a particular White House dinner to go over to John Frankenheimer, who was at the dinner, and tell him that the president wanted him to make this movie. Okay, so that. Uh, this, this is what was going on at the time. And remember that President Kennedy was doing this whole thing in coordination with Pope John XXIII. The Pope John XXIII was in communications with Khrushchev and with Kennedy in offering to be the broker of this agreement, uh, which otherwise uh, there would have been no defensible reason to believe that it could have been enforced effectively. And yet, if there was a person that was trusted deeply by Khrushchev and by Kennedy, uh, that this could be done. And that was exactly what was underway uh, in, in 1963. And so uh, even, even and uh, Pope John XXIII then penned a specific papal encyclical called Pachamenteras, in which he explicitly called for the elimination of the nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, and was and used language that was virtually identical to the language that Kennedy and Khrushchev were using in the exchange of their letters, uh, showing that he had access to those letters and knew what was going on and was serving as the broker of that. And it's important to remember that Dulles would have been the guy if he got the nod from these 60 men uh, that were in this cabal that would have then reached out through Theodore Shackley, who was the Miami bureau chief of the CIA and the previous 20 year plus deputy to Reinhard Galen, the head of the, the Nazi uh, uh, anti-Soviet and anti-Eastern Bloc intelligence, who is now serving as the chief of intelligence for West Germany, that it was through Shackley that they would have gotten back to that fascist cabal down in South America uh, to have them realize that they were getting ready to kill the president to protect this fascist alliance around the world. And that that's how that's how this would have gone. And there's no way there's no way that Edward Lansdale would have been in Dealey Plaza unless the people that were involved in the Anderson Trust were involved in this. Because remember, Ed Lansdale is the one that initiated the process that resulted in the creation of the Anderson Trust. This $1.2 trillion in secret uh, gold uh, certificates that were being used to finance the creation and, and maintenance of this fascist network throughout the world. Uh, and, uh, and just parenthetically, when uh, I don't think I mentioned to you that when when uh, 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 Santo Romano died, the guy that that uh, the Edward Lansdale actually had doing the torturing of the driver of General Yakushima, the head of the Golden Lily Company, that actually the the uh, Japanese uh, military group that that had commandeered all these things. When, when Santo Romano died, he left in his will to Edward Lansdale $50 billion to Edward Lansdale. So this, this operation uh, of, the, uh, of the Anderson Trust was extraordinarily 
powerful in that, uh, and therefore the people that were involved in the Anderson Trust, which would have been Robert Lovett and John J. McCloy and Robert Anderson would also have had to have been involved uh, in giving the green light to this, which would have been easy since, since Lovett and, uh, and uh, Anderson were also senior partners in Brown Brothers Harriman. Okay, so, so this, is, uh, this is basically setting forth for you uh, in, in simple terms uh, what the sort of the key facts are that, uh, that are, are, in my judgment, virtually beyond dispute, since I happen to have personal knowledge of several of these key facts, uh, specifically revolving around not only uh, what, what uh, William Pauley said in the presence of Dick Billings, but also from my own direct personal conversations with William Buckholder uh, or uh, uh, jo- Joseph Burkholder Smith, telling me about this extraordinary experience that he had in the Mexico station of the CIA being brought by Nasser Haro with the full consent of, uh, of Tom Polgar to sit down with these fascist Nazis uh, as a condition for him being able to stay on as the, the deputy uh, CIA station uh, chief down there. Uh, and so, so this is, this is uh, what I'm telling you uh, about so that you'll you'll know that this is true, and I don't. And I, the, the the key thing to understand is that I'm I'm telling you this only so that you'll know how bad things are, not so that will paralyze you, but so you will be able to know what it is that you have to do something about, because it doesn't do it. There's this this famous. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you about it in context uh, next week. But when we, when I was getting, I had filed, uh, getting ready to file the uh, the complaint in the Iran-Contra case, and I brought a copy of the complaint over to um, uh, Scott, what was Scott's name? Scott, uh, the guy at the National, uh, the National Security Archives, Scott uh, something, or I'll think of his name. But the bottom line is I, I went over and sat down with him to bring a copy of this over to him. And, uh, and he looked at it and he said, oh, this can't be true. This can't be true or else I would know about this. And, uh, and I said, well, it is true and you don't know about it. So I think you should check your sources uh, and, and come to a determination whether you think this is true or not. And so uh, he said he was gonna do that. A couple of days later, he called me uh, and he asked me to come back over to the National Security Archives and I sat down and he said, literally said, well, I'll be a son of a bitch. He said, uh, it turns out this is true. He said, uh, I checked with my sources uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's true that these guys are doing this thing. They've set up this whole enterprise to uh, act in complete uh, disregard of what presidents happen to disagree with them about. Uh, and so what he said is, look, I'm going to go over to talk to Peter Rodino who's still the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And Peter Rodino had been the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee when they returned the articles of impeachment uh, against uh, Richard Nixon and, and voted to send those articles to the floor of the House of Representatives to be voted on. 
and uh, and uh, why can't I think of Scott's last name? What is Scott's last name? The, the fellow over at the National Security Archives. Anyway, I'll think of it for in a minute. But 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 the, the bottom line is is that uh, that Scott was the guy. He was he was what he said to me. He said, "Oh look," he said, "I'm going to go see Peter Rudino. You know, Peter Rudino loves me because Scott was the guy who actually uh, interviewed Alexander Butterfield, who was the guy who revealed the fact that Nixon had the 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 uh, electronic recording device set up in the Oval Office." And so when they found out about that, then they were able to subpoena those tapes. Uh, and by subpoenaing those tapes, they could actually find out what the actual conversations were that Richard Nixon was having uh, in the Oval Office, trying to obstruct the investigation of the Watergate burglary. And when uh, when Scott Scott went over to uh, uh, to meet with Peter Rodino, uh, I was waiting to hear from him. And I if it would just take a day or two. I hadn't heard from him for two or three days. And so I, I called I called over to the uh, to the uh, National Security Archives and uh, I talked to Tom, who was his assistant. And uh, and I said to Tom, I said, you know, what's the story? I've been waiting for Scott to call me back. Uh, and he said, oh, look, you got to You got to come over and talk with me right away. So I went over and sat down with Tom. Tom said, oh, Scott is so embarrassed. He went over to talk to Peter Rodino about this, and he showed him a copy of your complaint. And Peter Rodino looked at this, and he said, my God, Scott, he said, this is terrible. He said, if what's being said here in this complaint is true, why, I mean, I've been, I've been telling my constituents that if they didn't like the way that American foreign policy was going, that they ought to write a letter to their congressman. Uh, if your congressman doesn't do anything about this, you ought to vote for somebody else to be your congressman. He said, but if what these people are saying is true, why then, why then we haven't even been in charge? He said, I'm not going to allow the United States Congress to investigate anything like that. That's what he said. So, so what, I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is that, you know, uh, if you don't understand this information, you may still be living in the illusion that all you have to do is write a letter to your congressperson. You know, or that in fact you might even be able to replace your congressperson, and that things would get solved. Uh, but that's clearly not true, because they are not in charge. That this cabal is in charge. And so the key is is having to figure out how to dig in and find out who these people are, you know, what their leverages of power are, and how we can dislodge them. Uh, and so that's that's the that's the conversation that we're going to have to have here toward the end of the course because I don't want you uh, leaving this course thinking that you've just been told a lot of really bad news uh, because because the this this is fact in fact good news uh, the fact that you now know what's really going on is better news than you might have expected to get at college. Uh, and so the, at least with, with regard to this aspect of reality, which I think is a pretty critical central aspect of reality here, uh, you now know what it is that we're up against. So we've, we've got this peculiar thing going on uh, with the election right now where, where the, the people that are in charge of the Republican and Democratic Party together uh, – are are really quite distressed right now. 
because on the uh, well, the, it's hard to say whether it's on the right in a consistent way. But obviously, the Republican Party is traumatized about the fact that that this guy Trump uh, has risen into the ascendancy and has taken advantage by having access to his own private fortune to be able to finance his election. He's actually been able to get, uh, or is on the very brink of getting, a majority. Uh, of the elected uh, delegates to the Republican National Convention, and that he's on the very brink of now being the nominee. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out what it is they're going to do about that. Uh, and in the Democratic Party, it turns out that uh, that uh, that Bernie Sanders has been uh, regularly beating uh, Hillary Clinton in these uh, recent uh, recent uh, primary races, and he has approximately 45% of all of the delegates. And he's involved in a very aggressive campaign to try to see whether or not uh, he can secure enough of the delegates to keep Hillary Clinton from getting the 2,136 of them or so that she has to have in order to win on the first ballot. Uh, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to win a majority of the popularly elected delegates so that he's going to corner her that in order for her to get over on the first ballot, she's going to have to invoke the superdelegates who are all the official party members who are the Congress people and the senators and the governors, the lieutenant governors and attorneys general that are all uh, registered members of the Democratic Party, uh, and that uh, and so, so the, the, what the Democrats, uh, the leadership of the Democratic Party, are concerned about is that this would not look good to have to have her not win a majority of the of the uh, the votes of the elected delegates and have to rely upon the professional politicians who are all being paid by the exact same PACs and businesses and corporations that she's being uh, having her campaign financed by in part that's that's not to agree or disagree with that that's just to make that observation that that's what that's what the condition is that's going on and so that there are two candidates uh that are basically uh defying the normal constabulary of the republican and democratic parties here uh, and so that there's th this is a moment uh, in comparatively recent history, uh, which would be all of your lives and all of my life, uh, that that the Republican constabulary and Democratic Party constabulary are not in the tightest control that they are usually in. Uh, they, they have uh, by attempting to to uh, pay homage in some sense to popular uh, participatory democracy, they've let it get out of hand. That the fact is that the, the people engaged in popular democracy have displayed to the constabulary, the two parties, that they don't like them uh, and that they feel that they're being cheated by them, that the game is rigged against the regular people uh, and peculiarly, very peculiarly, you know, one is a uh, an arrogant blowhard billionaire who spent his own money 
basically admitting openly that he's manipulated the system and not paid taxes and basically bribed congressional people to do what it is he wanted to do. And now he wants to run as, uh, for the presidency, uh, publicly revealing how corrupt they are. You know? uh, and, but on the other hand, there is Bernie Sanders, who is basically just plain throwing down on them and exposing them for what they are. Uh, and, and yet they believe that they've cornered uh, Bernie Sanders to have him now only be engaged in attempting to try to get 45% of all of the delegates at the convention to be, to be seated on the rules committee and on the platform committee so that he can try to get the Democratic Party to publicly endorse a platform that gives Hillary Clinton the space to take much more progressive policy positions than she might otherwise take. Uh, now, as to how successful that's going to be, in light of in light of the long-going historical attachment that Hillary Clinton has developed with these financiers uh, and with her and her husband's foundation, which relies upon major grants from these same major uh, financial institutions and corporations is yet to be seen. Uh, but that's the dynamic that's going on now. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a threat from, from Trump, uh, which, which we may still yet see, even, even despite all of the public uh, hugging that is starting to go on now uh, on the part of the Republican constabulary kind of warming up to and starting to hug Trump and get Trump to be a little more moderate and stop saying the kind of things he's going to say. You know, uh, if, if, the, if the Democratic populists are successful in, in getting Hillary Clinton to, for example, choose Elizabeth Warren as her vice president, her vice presidential candidate, that will probably send Trump completely out of control uh, and that he'll become the lunatic that he generally is. And he's going to be making every kind of lurid, nasty uh, comment that he can about the two of them uh, and therefore expose uh, himself uh, to the 53% of the American electorate that are women, uh, even though we're now up at an 80% level of a complete revulsion uh, on the part of the women uh, against him, uh, including some suburban Republican women who can't stand him. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to see how this how this plays itself out. Uh, but uh, but I don't I don't want to get us too deeply into just discussing the present election. We're going to be able to do that a little bit more uh, in week ten when we kind of try to sum up where we are in the course. But I, I wanted to get this information out in front of you specifically about the Kennedy assassination in the context of this course, showing the lengths to which this cabal will go and the lengths to which the cabal has gone. In fact, and not only in attempting to mount a military coup against Roosevelt in 1934, but actually assassinating uh, a, a sitting president uh, in order to maintain their unchallenged military superiority over everyone else in the world. Uh, so, so that's, that's, I just wanted to take two 
of our regular uh, regular sessions together to lay out the basic details of this. I've also uh, we have we put together one of these charts that I know you love so much. Uh, these this is this is a chart of the actual assassination itself. Okay. The the other one is the larger the larger context in which this took place. This is uh, the context of the actual assassination itself. So you can pick these up uh, in, in the, at the end of this. We've got about 10 more minutes left that we can begin uh, the discussion here because I want to continue the discussion uh, when we go over next door for our, for our hour or so together. But I want to direct some of our attention in that meeting over there to your, to your thesis you know, that you're going to be writing here. And I want to start talking with you about some of the ideas that you have and don't be bashful about sharing them about what you think your topic might be and that we can kind of work it out together here uh, to, to help you. Okay. So there, so, so let's, let's try to focus uh, the, the myriad questions you have uh, uh, on the, uh, the, uh, the particular assassination itself and the role that the cabal uh, uh, I believe played in this. Okay. Well, the, the, the Lee, Lee Harvey, part of that would depend upon when they made the decision to do this, you see. And uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had been a guy who had already been dipped, you know, in this illusionary warfare thing. He had already been colored as a pro-communist and a leftist. So they had a guy right there. That one of the key elements of this thing was is that the, the initial objective, well, the initial objective may have been to get rid of him because he was secretly trying to disassemble the nuclear warheads of the American arsenal. The bottom line is they wanted to attack Cuba. They wanted to launch a military attack, uh, and they wanted to basically instigate, some of them wanted to instigate a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union to be able to stomp them out. Uh, the, the thing that Curtis LeMay did, that, that, they, that they actually advocated a unilateral secret a sneak attack on the part of the United States against the Soviet Union to just to bomb them flat uh, while we still had such a remarkable advantage over them uh, with the number of missiles that we had. Uh, so that the, that as it was during that, it was after the Cuban Missile Crisis when he made this turnabout uh, and started basically organizing this peaceful would-be world uh, that they would have made that decision. And that's that's at the end of 1962. And uh, so that they already, when, when it's, they started thinking in terms of, of uh, killing him, they had to try to figure out some way not only to, to get him stopped from disassembling the missiles, they were trying to figure out some way to blame it on Cuba so they could then attack it. And so here was a guy who is coming back into the United States. He's in the hands of the right-wing cabal. Uh, he's actually working in, in New Orleans, helping them smuggle weapons around and do this kind of stuff. So they've got a patsy right there among themselves. And if they can basically coax him into participating in a, 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 a false assassination attempt that they can then blame on Castro, he could be game for that. That he would be willing to be involved in something like that. Uh, but to get surprised by the fact that they actually assassinated him, 
you know, in the midst of this fake assassination attempt, you know, freaked him out. Uh, so that I, I would think that that was, that's the reason that they would have picked him is because it gave them the additional dimension of being able to blame it on, uh, on Cuba. And that's why they did these fake things of him going down to Mexico City and trying to get the visa to go to, to go to, to, to set him up. To, why don't you try to pretend that you're part of the fair play for Cuba committee? You know, that's showing that he's part of this effort to try to direct the suspicion toward, toward them from this potential false uh, assassination attempt. You know, so that's why I think that they would have focused on him. Well, there, there are about, uh, gee, there are about six or eight uh, different uh, theories uh, about this whole thing. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the, that's the one that was with the, the, uh, uh, the they had the babushka and then they had the umbrella person too. That's the, that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yes. In that they've, they've, they've drilled down on that and they have found uh that several, well, they've actually felt compelled to have to address some of these things. And the, they've, they've tracked down who the umbrella person is and who the babushka person, woman is and all that. And they've just, they've basically eliminated those, those as part of the, the, the real conspiracy here. Uh, and that there's, there's a couple others, like there's a, this whole assertion that the driver of the car turned around and shot him, you know, uh, but that's completely uh, put the lie to by by the individuated frames once you get at the actual Zapruder film. Uh, and so th there are there, there are some other ones too. What, what are some of the, uh, no, they, they had the, the, there's a whole major one about uh, the Federal Reserve, the people that were uh, in support of the Federal Reserve because they were asserting that that on uh, June 5th of 1963, he issued Executive Order 11111, uh, uh, ordering the uh, the printing of uh, of uh, gold certificates, the silver certificates, attempting to go off the Federal Reserve system. But uh, but we've drilled in on that, and uh, and it, it's clear that that wasn't wasn't going to happen. That wasn't what it was really doing. So there's there's uh, there are probably as many as 12 to 15 different kind of systematic uh, explanations for what was going on here. But many of them are just little individual pieces, like the umbrella man, you know, oh, well, look, there was a guy, what's a guy doing carrying an umbrella on a sunny day like that? Why would he have raised the umbrella and, and lowered the umbrella just so so uh, close to the, when the shots rang out? You know, those are coming at it kind of from the bottom, logistically and noticing little things wrong. Uh, but the, the, the advantage that we have over time of having reviewed all of this stuff, you can come in at a higher level and have a clear uh, kind of deductive understanding of what it is that happened. And then you can look down into the, the details and it explains all kinds of things that you can't really explain. But that, that one's been pretty well investigated and, it, and it, it's not going anywhere. Have we got a few? Um, where can we get more information on Kennedy's? There's that. Uh, there's a, a a couple books. There's one book called uh, what is it? That uh, uh, Kennedy's World of Peace. I'll, I'll bring it. I'll bring you the the author on that. I think it's 
Kennedy's World of Peace. It's, it's sitting on my desk now. Uh, but then there was another one called the uh, the Unlikely Triumvirate, I think, uh, which I'll get the author of that one too. That they were talking about this issue about uh, John the 23rd and Khrushchev and he in the letters. Uh, but you can look up uh, some of the Norman Cousins under Norman Cousins uh, uh, in find out because he is the guy that was carrying uh, a number of the letters uh, back and forth. Uh, so you can you can pull him up under that, and and also you can look under like the secret secret communications, uh, because there's there's a a, a group of uh, sort of publicly known secret communications that uh, the letters that were exchanged by Khrushchev, the big famous letters, you know, where Bobby Kennedy said ignore the last letter and, and pretend you only got this one. There's a number of private communications that went through the State Department channels that have now been publicly revealed. But these other ones are not. They're just these esoteric. Uh, and uh, Jim Douglas may talk about some of it too in uh, in uh, the uh, JFK and the unspeakable because he's a, a pretty uh, active uh, Catholic social justice person. So he probably knows some stuff too about the, the, the John Twenty-Third and his activities in that. Okay, but, but I'll get the names of those other couple authors in the books. Okay, great. Okay, okay. So look, it's uh, it's time now. Why don't we puddle over next door, and uh, we've got another hour to to work on this stuff. Okay. <laughs>